Okay, so met with somebody named the master and uh let's pull up a little Raytheon bit. has a facility down there. Mm -hmm. I'd had people email in about this guy, Admiral Byrd, who yep. is a famous explorer, World War Two. Yep. Um World War Two Admiral. Yeah. And um <clears throat> had done a lot of exploring down there. And then, you know, the more I dig into this, it's just it's a wild story. It is. You know, we got the, in 1954, Admiral Byrd quoted, Antarctica in the future would become the most important place in the world for, for science. Mm -hmm. um, Rockefeller yeah. was part, was a big patron of Byrd's expeditions to mm -hmm. the North Pole oh, yeah. and the South Pole. Why do you think Admiral Byrd and the Rockefellers were so much more interested in yeah. Antarctica, the South Pole, rather than the North Pole, yeah. having been to both? Well, you know, he had been to both. He had been to the North Pole uh, in, uh, in, the tw in the 1920s, and he had seen that. But there is a situation that began to happen during World War II where they discovered that the Nazis had went down to Antarctica and built a base down there, New Schwabenland. They were like, wait a minute. Why in the world would they go to this desolate place? What's down there that they would want to go and, 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 and go through the harsh weather and risk everything, risk even their lives to be down there and build a base? So he decided to fly down there. Now, there's an incredible story that was in, in uh, Admiral Byrd's diary that was found by his kids, where he said he flew into an area that opened up at Antarctica, and he went into an area where it was lush and tropical almost. And as he got into this area, this is according to his own diary. People can look this up. Something took over his plane, and these two UFO-type craft, circular craft, flying saucers, came, and it took over his craft, and it guided him in to this area where they landed. And then they took him to meet somebody that he calls in his diary the Master. Uh, pretty interesting story. And according to this account, the, the, the Nazis had gotten help to create these craft called the Hanabu. They had four versions of this craft, these circular disc craft, from these people down there. Um, but the, the guy, this master, told him that they were wary of the, uh, the nuclear bombs that had just you know, been utilized, uh, dropped the nuclear in Japan and so forth, and they were wary of our experimentation with nuclear devices and wars because they're sharing this planet as well. Pretty interesting story. Um, and so, you know, all of a sudden, Admiral Byrd is going down there with a fleet. Not just a small fleet. He took over 3,000 people with him. This was a huge expedition. It was a military expedition. When he got down there, they had a situation where some of these flying objects were attacking some of their ships and actually destroyed some of them. Sent him back home packing with his tail between his legs. This one of the top admirals, literally the top admiral in the world at the time for the United States military. And he said, he said that we have a new enemy that can fly from pole to pole with extreme speed. Why would he make a statement like that? And then all of a sudden, you know, these Nazi, they are rumored to have these craft, which some of the designs have been found, called Hanabu. And uh, these Hanabu craft had the capability of using, utilizing uh, a couple different forms of, of uh, propulsion. One was jets, so they could take off vertically. They had little jets that would thrust and take off vertically. But then from there, they can shoot off horizontally. 
Well, they were using a, a device that was spinning in the center of the uh, of the craft. And what it appears to be is they began to copy technology from the ancient Indian Vedas, because Hitler was sending his people all around the world to get knowledge on ancient technology. That's how they found these people in Antarctica. He even sent people to Tibet, Nazis to Tibet, to talk to the people in Tibet to find out about this ancient technology. He found out about Bamanas, and these people supposedly in Antarctica helped him develop uh, a couple of them, where they use a ferrofluid vortex engine. A ferrofluid is a liquid metal like mercury. And in the ancient Indian Vedas, if you take mercury and rotate it at a high, high rotation, a high RPM, and electrify it, you get something called anti-gravity. So he was utilizing something that had rotating disc underneath these round craft, according to eyewitness counts, and also the schematics that were discovered during the collapse of Nazi Germany. Um, and it's pretty interesting that I think besides the uranium that's down there in Antarctica, which obviously you know what uranium is used for, right? Uh -huh. Nuclear power plants and also nuclear weapons. There's mountains. Of, he, Admiral Byrd said there were mountains of coal with no ice caps. No ice caps, his exact words, and I have a, I can give you a copy to this video. His own mouth is saying, no ice. Mountains of coal that can satisfy the world's need for coal for a very, very, very long time. Also, there's plutonium down there. Again, so uranium and plutonium, we know that if you have a high level of plutonium and uranium, it's one of the easier uh, elements that you can separate the atoms. You can split atoms very easily, which makes it high use for weaponry and also, also power plants. So that's why the, the government wanted access down there. That's why the, the Germans wanted access Mountains down there. Cool. Um, and that's why after Germany fell, we had Project Paperclip, where we took all the scientists from Germany that had learned all this wisdom and knowledge, and we brought them to America. People think Project Paperclip was just a small number of Nazis. We took over 2,000 Nazis with us and brought them to America and put them in positions of power over technology companies, the CIA, NASA. the space program at NASA, and so forth and so on. And we began to develop these technologies. So in a weird kind of way, America became the fourth Reich, to be honest with you. Uh, and I know that they were developing at the time Hanabu number four, which supposedly Hitler never got killed. He escaped in Hanabu number four to Argentina, which is very, very close to where? Antarctica. If you look at Google Sky right now on the computer and look down on Antarctica, you'll find bases from uh, research bases from every major country in the world there. And you'll also find the Rockefeller Foundation base as well. So Admiral Byrd was right. All the technology and research is the number one place in the world for technology research is right down there in Antarctica. I believe that as the ice is melting, they're finding remnants of an ancient civilization we know that antarctica was not a frozen tundra for 12 million years like main scientists want you to mainstream scientists 12 million years to build up all this ice no 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 that's not accurate we know this because of the perry reese map the perry reese map shows antarctica what it looked like without ice on it and that's not even that old so we know that antarctica shifted into that spot how because we know that antarctica is surrounded by tectonic plates and so that landmass was on a plate that slipped and had there was a there was something called a pole shift of the crust of the earth, which shifted it from a more habitable climate into the position it is now. And that's why the animals that are being uncovered from the ice were flash frozen with undigested food in their stomachs. And there's an entire advanced civilization there, including some of the largest pyramids on Earth, right in Antarctica. That's what I wanted to get to is the so apparently the 
pyramids down there are a lot. They're a lot bigger than the oh, ones in the super megalithic. Like they make the one in, at Giza, the Great Pyramid look like uh, you know a, a, a buggy, a dune buggy. I mean, these things are super massive. Do you know anything about them? Why is filing your taxes with Free Tax USA different? Well, for starters, our premium. No, there's not a lot. There's only a couple things we know. Like one of the pyramids is two kilometers by two kilometers by two kilometers by two kilometers at the oh, base. Wow. Okay, the height is just you know it's massive. It's just it's it's way up there. Like you know it's in the thousands of feet. But also, one former military person that was a um, a uh, a source for Linda Moton Howe. This was on a documentary she was in. She said that that source told her after going down there for research, I guess in private security, that it was still emitting some type of exotic energy, which is pretty interesting because that was the second time I heard a statement like that. This, the first time was on a documentary that came on Discovery Channel about the Bermuda Triangle when they found those pyramids off the coast of Cuba down there, right? which is clearly scanned. Everybody knows that they, they exist, but this guy was taking a little, he would get off the boat and take like a dinghy out to float to the center area. And he said the same thing. Some type of exotic energy was draining his batteries on his cameras. He had to do try it three times to get this thing recorded properly. He said exotic energy. And what's interesting is if you take um, a perfect line and draw it from the tip of the Bermuda Triangle, the center of the Bermuda Triangle, straight through the earth, you come out at the Yonaguni Pyramid at the Dragon's Triangle in Japan which is also rumored to have uh, disappearances and exotic energy and all this other crazy stuff. So in some way, these pyramid structures around the world are all linked with potentially portals of some type or energetic portals. Interesting. Just some, um, some facts about Antarctica. It's 5 million square miles, 99% of it is covered with ice. It's the highest, driest, and coldest continent on Earth. Record negative 130 degrees fahrenheit fifth, lar fifth largest con continent twice the size of australia 70 percent of the planet's fresh water yeah. comes from antarctica there are rivers and lakes underneath the ice mm -hmm. the difference between the north and south pole the north pole ice <clears throat> the north pole is ice over water and it's 10,000 feet deep into the ocean. Mm. The South Pole is ice over land and is 10,000 feet high. That's the center of the plateau. Yeah. And then goes on to talk about the pyramid structures. Yeah. We also signed a treaty, mm -hmm. the Antarctica Treaty. Do you know about this? Yeah, that treaty was to allow peaceful collaboration of research and science down there, no war zone. Um, you can actually go down there. There's a guy who's got a new show on my TV network called, his name is Brad Olson. It's called The Secrets of Antarctica. He went down there, and so we're documenting the whole thing. He went down there, he, he pulled up on the research facilities. He had to get approval to come on land. They wouldn't let him inside of the facilities, but he did get a chance to go down there. So people who say it's impenetrable and no human being, could, no civilian can get there, that's actually not true. You actually can. It's very expensive and it's very uh, taxing on the body but you can get down there um and so uh it's pretty interesting so that'll be coming out soon but uh that re though, there's an opening next to these research facilities and this is why i believe they made this treaty this sharing of information treaty or whatever there's a 30 meter wide opening there 
you can see it on 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 the on the Google Sky thing. And what's interesting on Google Earth, I'm sorry. And when you look at it, like what's in there? Like why are they over here? And why are they so close to this gigantic opening? What's in there? I think this, the answer is whatever Admiral Byrd came across, across, or whatever they're coming across. I think it's linked. I think there's a remnant of an ancient civilization in there that possibly is still there, um, and they're in communication with them. In my opinion, another thing that backs us up. I took a remote viewing course with Major Ed Dames, Project Stargate, former CIA, uh, United States. And his project was for remote viewing. So I took a course with him several years. He was mm -hmm. my actual teacher, my direct teacher. It wasn't like I was under some other people that worked with him. No, he was my direct teacher. There's pictures of me with this man. And he told me that there's beings that have easy and free access to come and go as they please from Antarctica at one of these classes. We just had, that was, class was over. It was like a 10-hour class. We were just sitting around talking, having a casual conversation. He told me a few other things, but that was one of the things that kind of stood out. And he says they, they come and go as they please because nobody can stop them. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Yeah. What do you make of Eric Hecker's testimony? Oh, it's pretty interesting, man. Look, I mean, a lot of these guys are pretty shaken up, mm -hmm. you know? Um, you know that from how hard it is for them to talk about what happened, that they went through something. It's pretty clear to see that something happened uh, that affected them in a way that they'll probably never be the same again. You know, so um, when you see that, you have to say, man, what what happened? And, you know, you have to almost kind of take them for their word. Now, there's always my story, your story, and the truth, right? There's always a combination of all. But from these guys' perspective and from my perspective looking in, I believe, honestly, that, um, you know, that something happened and uh they're doing the best he's doing the best he can to describe what it was are you familiar with the the bell the nazi bell the dike lock yes yeah can you talk about that knowledge <laughs> you know about all of it for you skeptics out there, check this out. One of my dear favorite students named Shlomi, he just got a $6,000 claim. <laughs> the Diglock. The Diglock is an amazing device that was being developed by the Nazis during World War II. This Diglock, again, technology that they learned about through uh, an advanced civilization that they were in communication with through the Thule Society. This Thule, T-H-U-L-E, Thule Society, they were using psychics to channel information from an advanced alien race. And they were taking this knowledge and then turning it into actual real workable technology. And so they had this thing in Germany called the Henge, where they had these gigantic stone pillars in the, in the shape of a hinge. And they had the diglock in the middle. It was a, it looked like an, uh, an acorn, a UFO type, but an acorn shape UFO. And it had these multi counterclockwise spinning pieces on it. It was spinning all different ways. Um, the ultimate purpose of it seems to have been some type of time travel. And this thing at one point, based on eyewitness accounts, it's turned on and activated and it, it disappeared from the hinge. It was seen like, I forget how many decades later, I think it crashed somewhere in Virginia or something, <laughs> according to these accounts. I got to look that up to get, make sure I'm not making, you know, making a mistake there, but it, it reappeared later mm. and it crashed somewhere, I believe in the Americas. Um, and this thing was the same exact shape and description as the Diglock. And what was it for? I believe that they were trying to tap into time travel so that they can go back in time 
and change the past so they can have a Nazi dominant future. You see, they want to alter realities. The only problem with going back in time they didn't take into consideration is that if you go back in time, you can't alter the future reality that you existed in on the same timeline. Because when you go back in time, you shift into a different alternate timeline altogether, allowing you to go back in time in the first place and see even yourself. So it's like the grandfather paradox, right? If you go back in time and kill your grandfather, how in the world were you born to go back in time to kill your grandfather? Well, the answer is you shift into an alternate timeline. Now, going into the future, you stay on the same timeline. We know this because time travel into the future happens every day. Even when you get on an airplane, you travel into the future based on relativity. The person standing still on the ground and you moving across the sky in a plane, we know that you're moving forward in time by microns of tenths of a second, but you're moving in time. Same thing with astronauts when they travel into space. We know for a fact that because they're traveling at high speeds, they come back, uh, you know, microns of a second younger than us. So traveling into the future, you can stay on the same timeline, but going into the past, you can't. So that whole thing would have failed anyway. Interesting. Yeah. Fascinating stuff. Let's take another break. When we come back, I want to talk a little bit about uh, Elon Musk and okay. the big push to settle Mars. Oh, yeah. Okay. All right. Cool. You've heard the buzz about ketone supplements and how they can boost your... It's not as Sean. That's crucial. Eat. Richard Branson. Just in general. We see... As time goes on, we see more and more billionaires, trillionaires, yeah. Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, Richard Branson. I mean, there's this obsession with space. Yeah. And Elon says, I believe he wants to occupy Mars by, is it 2025? Yeah. And what, why is the fascination in space? Has all of Earth been discovered? I mean, what, uh, what's... No. Is it hopeless here? Why is everybody moving to space? <laughs> yeah, well, in their mind, it's hopeless here. And so uh, we've, we haven't even, you know, really looked at the oceans that much. There's so much going on here on this planet. We haven't explored a lot of Earth. There's so much more to explore. Mm -hmm. However, based on the way we're set up as a global economic system, and you look at what's going on, it just seems to a lot of billionaires that the next big move is, you know, let's go create a breakaway civilization and start our own thing over here, basically is what it is. And so we know that Mars has a lot of data over the last several decades. Why? Because we've sent so many missions to Mars, and so has Russia as well. If you look at the total amount of missions to Mars with rovers and satellites and calculate the expenditure, you're in the trillions of dollars. Now, why would anybody spend trillions of dollars to go visit a cold, dry rock? So it makes these billionaires start asking questions, and then they're in the in crowd so they can get some answers, and they find out that Mars is not exactly what we've been told in terms of habitability. We found out that Mars, we were told, was a cold, dry rock with no magnetic field, and DNA would just unravel based on the radiation. All of a sudden, a new science has come out. Earth, Mars has a rotating magnetic field, and not only that, it spins on its axis almost at the same exact speed of Earth. So a day on Mars is like 23.5 hours. And so that speed of the rotation on its axis creates something called bow shock, which bends and warps cosmic rays and radiation around the planet, along with the weakened magnetic field. You can actually survive. Anything with DNA can survive on the surface. Also now, the science data has come back from the REMS unit we sent there, and there's oxygen. 
There is oxygen. There is oxygen on Mars. Yes, there's oxygen. Not only that, guess what they said about the soil? They said the soil on Mars is better for growing crops than the soil on Earth. <laughs> <laughs> Are you serious? I'm dead serious. How would they know this, right? Also, there's not just oxygen, but all the other uh, gases that are needed to sustain biological life. Now, is oxygen still leaking? Hey, we're listening to a Gaia show. Congratulations to Miley Cyrus, my follower, on her Grammy. Esoteric Mysteries of Antarctica. Sounds pretty groovy. Thanks for 323K, even though it's just law enforcement. Some tea right now. Some early morning tea. Today on Cosmic Disclosure, we're with Richard Doty a retired counterintelligence agent oh, who served in the Air Force Office of Special boring. Investigations. Also joining us is Tim, a tactical advisor okay. to covert analysts trying to understand the missions and strategies of non-human intelligences on our planet. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you. Well, I'm really excited about today's episode because we're going to get into Antarctica. And I want to start off first by asking Tim to explain some of the history of Antarctica that you're aware of. Right, so every time I was bored, I was looking into um, whatever documents I could get my hands on and, and just read them because it portrays a whole different other history compared to um, what you find in the books. Information that are different uh, to the conventional Right, than the normal history. Right. right. So what do we know? We certainly have seen that there's... Um, the, the the Nazis itself were quite interested in, well, the search for Atlantis and mysterious places all around the globe. So they had missions going to Egypt, had missions going to um, Tibet, to India, um, and they were looking for Tibet. things, um, whatever they could get their hands on. Um, this is because Hitler himself was very interested in finding alternative history facts because he was interested in art as well and he was a collector himself. Conventional history shows as well that he's ha had a big interest in all these uh, myths and secrets around the world. We also know that there's a second key player in the uh, Third Reich um, that... Um, was, you know, kind of opposing Hitler himself, which was Himmler. Himmler um, himself, he, he grew to the second man of power in, in the uh, Third Reich. And over time, you can see that um, this SS state somehow um, became a force in itself, almost like the first breakaway civilization that history uh, of this planet has ever had. And it's, it's quite fascinating because he has done extensive research, for example, on witches and, and uh, magic powers. And that is what the documents are indicating, that some thousands of years ago, Antarctica wasn't an ice place, but it was quite Mediterranean in its climate. 
because at that time the pole shifts were different. The, the the poles, right. the magnetic yeah. poles, were different uh, on the planet. So the weather was different, and they arranged the first mission down there, uh, which was done uh, through a um, ship that they, they constructed only for that particular case. In fact, it was one of the first uh, aircraft carriers that was designed just to explore Antarctica. What year was this? Early 30s. Um, right. and I, I don't know. Do you know it? Yeah, 1936. So, okay, perfect. Neuschwabenland, which was the name of the um, of the ship, and um, they had an aircraft on it, which uh, where they could fly around Antarctica. And no country in the world at that time was interested in Antarctica. Why were they so obsessed with the Tem? For two reasons, basically. At at a certain time in history, Antarctica was populated mm -hmm. and it might have been a place that could have any kind of significance to the Nazis. Because they, at least Himmler, believed very strongly in magic and, mm -hmm. um, you know, psionic effects. Um, so they're looking for the secrets, maybe some artifacts, maybe some technology left behind by this ancient civilization. A hundred percent. And the second reason is, uh, with the cause um, of the war going um less in favor for the uh, for the Nazis at that time they were looking for a remote remote base um, where they could you know um, potentially do some things and what we've seen in the document is that they um, created a special class of um, uh, u-boats which was called uh, cow class actually uh, translated and, so those submarines oh, were specially designed. They were the class that could dive the deepest uh, at that time. What we've also seen in the documents, and we have that listed, is the amount of material that they, you know, put down there. Machinery, uh, a whole train, systems... Uh, technicians, everything. They went from Germany down to Antarctica so many times. And in the process of the World War, even more and more and more. And you have that listed. You can see all the material that they brought down there, which is immense. Um, they have brought machinery uh, down there in order to create steam uh, and in order to create like an igloo effect um, down in Antarctica. We've also seen uh, that um, when the, the war in Europe seems to have come to an end, there are some very interesting um, situations. So some people might say, yeah, Hitler might have gone down to Antarctica. I'm, I'm pretty convinced from what I've read that he um, died in the bunker in Berlin at that time. They've done pretty extensive, you know, analysis mm. on the teeth and um, the skull, which uh, the Russians took to Moscow. What, what do you think about that, Rick? Well, I, I, I oh, believe okay. he died. Yeah. yeah, I believe he died. He, did? he, okay. died, in, uh, he died in Berlin in a bunker. I mean, there's mm. so much evidence yes. that would show that he, he died. Why were they launching a disinformation campaign then about maybe his escape to Antarctica? Is that to control uh, the Germans? Or? I think there's an element, as Tim knows, there's an element within Germany, the Nazi uh, party, mm. although it was outlawed, there were still so many supporters of the Nazi parties right up, right up until the 70s. 
Mm. And they had to uh, rearrange and reconstruct their government after uh, the fall of right. uh, 1945. And um, because the United States came in and abolished the government, mm -hmm. so they had to recreate it. And they knew that this element of the Nazi party would still be, uh, even in, in a philosophical way, is supportive. Right. I spent two semesters at Mainz University in Germany, and um, I studied German archives. And uh, the ironic thing about uh, what the Germans did to prepare themselves for Antarctica was the German government in, in the 1940s was the first country to develop synthetic clothing to insulate for mm -hmm. cold. It's similar to Gore-Tex. The German government perfected that. Now, Germany, it doesn't get that cold in Germany, even in northern Germany. So why would they, why would they do that? They made 6,000 pairs of these insulated boots, which were given to uh, – according to, to this one document, stormtroopers. Right. Uh, those stormtroopers <laughs> were the ones that went on the ship, the aircraft carrier, to go to Antarctica. During the time period where the concentration camps were in full operation, German scientists were trying to perfect the superhuman, and they were using the concentration camp uh, prisoners to do that. They were injecting them into all sorts of things to determine how they can strengthen and insulate their skin without uh, heavy clothing. There's a lot of uh, good information about uh, missing concentration camp prisoners. The, the Germans would come in, put them on a train, and they would go someplace. They wouldn't go to the gas chambers. They went someplace else. And there's good evidence that they took them down to Antarctica for experiments. Now, jump ahead now. As, as Tim said, the German government was the first one to set up an expedition in, inside Antarctica. And that was, I think, in 1936-1937 time frame. Uh, during the time period of the war, there were 11 different ships tracked, German uh, cargo ships, uh, going to uh, in that direction. Uh, right after the war, uh, the USS, I believe it was a man, Montana and another, uh, which was an aircraft carrier, I believe, or a battleship, and, and, a, and, and a U.S. submarine tracked two German submarines mm -hmm. going in that direction. Right. And it was just after the war, and uh, the fleet admiral was asked, do we, do we destroy these or let them go? And the admiral says, just let them go. The war is over with. Now we can jump ahead till now. Yes. There's so much talk about what has happened down in Antarctica over the years. We have bases down there. Uh, Germans have bases. Uh, Russians have bases. The Chinese have bases. In 1976, we know this to be factual. As far as most of this information, there's some of it that is still uh, questionable. The United States government has per were perfecting weapon systems back in those days. And they perfected a, a weapon system called the Spartan. Now, I'm not going to go into details of exactly what that was. And then uh, a second one called the Zeus. They had to find a place to test these weapon systems. They didn't want to do it at the Nevada test site. They were afraid of the what uh, damage that this, this we particular weapon, the Spartan, which was the first mm -hmm. one tested, would do. So they but decided they to do this down in Antarctica. What does, uh 
So they did. They took it down there. They fired two shots of this weapon into a tunnel that they had built a a half a mile into the the underground. 18 months later, Zeus was a second weapon system, entirely different type of weapon system. But they fired that. And that was in, I think, I believe it was 1978. And so they tested it. I believe it was only one shot. And there's some saying there were several shots. Now, jump ahead several years. An expedition team from the U.S. is flying over a particular area and sees this big hole in the ice in Antarctica. And they, they report it back. Hey, there's a huge hole in this ice. And this is some years later. Right. This is in the middle 80s. And so they decided to send a ground team in the summertime down there in the, in the December time frame area mm-hmm. era to figure out what this was. Right. So they sent this team down there, a seven-person team. Uh, they get to this tunnel. They go into this tunnel. And lo and behold, what, what we, they think these weapon systems cleared away and left was a pyramid. There's a pyramid down there. Now, how big is this pyramid? I don't know the dimensions. I, there's there's a wide variety of di- dimensions of the, that particular person, the, the man who claimed to be on the expedition and went down here was an army mm-hmm. uh, person uh, claimed it was Giza. similar to one in, in Giza. Oh, okay. Yeah, and, and it's a typical Egyptian pyramid. And so <laughs> the question is, what is this pyramid doing <laughs> oh, yeah. under Antarctica? What is this doing down there? And now that opens even a wider range of discussions on what it could be. You have anything to add to that, Tim? There are satellite pictures that uh, actually confirm what um, uh, Rick just said. And that is not only uh, the only thing that can be seen and um, seems to um, appear more and more uh, since um, the ice is slowly melting in Antarctica, We've also seen that there are strange objects, potentially crafts, um, you know, appearing uh, as shadowy um, uh, forms uh, under the ice. Um, From what I know, um, uh, I can also add that one of potentially the oldest spaceport is said to be found down there. And this is exactly what the Nazis were looking for in uh, the 1940s. Jump ahead now to uh, the 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, there was this particular expedition, U.S. expedition that went down there, uh, supposedly to uh, recover some old artifacts that were down there and actually found German artifacts, mm-hmm. uniforms and, and so forth. So that pretty much established the fact that the Germans were there at one point because it was an old base uh, wooden huts and so forth, and German uh, military uniforms. They didn't really date it, I don't believe. So, But what they also found was a craft, and that was in, two, in 1999. They found a craft, United States the Expedition. Now, they didn't know what to do with it. This particular 11-person uh, crew hadn't been told or even... Uh, uh, briefed on anything that they might find uh, other than artifacts, leave them in place. But when they find this craft that's buried under the ice, they could see it. An ironic part about that is when when it became somewhat dark during that time, although this was summertime, 
uh, there were lights going off inside this craft. So they didn't know what to do. They were not briefed, not prepared. So they left. They sent us another team down there, and there's very little known about this other team in recovery. There's a lot of stories that uh, that's been circulated about it. I know Linda Howe has one. They brought it out. It was only 15 feet in diameter, but it was really big on the bottom, like it was some kind of a container on the bottom of it. They brought it out. They had a heck of a time getting it from uh, from that site, which I believe was uh, like 300 miles uh, away from Myrtle Base. They couldn't do it by aircraft, so they had to bring a ship, a container ship. They, they contracted a deep salvage ship to come in to take that someplace and, right. and i don't know where they took it. i assumed probably to area 51 but if it was that long and i don't know what the length of that was uh they probably would have had problems of concealing that to a location i don't think it would have fit a, a, on board an aircraft right what else can you tell us about what we learned about that pyramid that was found down there boy that's a question that uh that i would love to know all the mm -hmm. answers to um it's very, very uh, compartmented, so to speak, and there's very little information. I know people have come forth on different programs and talked about it. Mm -hmm. uh, this special military team, the guy that claimed it, right. he was on the first team and now he's on the second team, he claims that when they went down into that, to the, the cavern where this pyramid was, was situated, that it was green, plush uh, metal down there. Somehow, the area around the, uh, the pyramid, the base of the pyramid, was green for some reason. Now, this is buried under Antarctica. How could it be green? Which, like which, algae or? Like algae. Anyways, and he describes that, but he also, the team that went down there, uh, they were only down there for like 30 minutes or so, a short period of time. And they felt sick and dizzy, so they had to, they had to go back up. Once they got away from the pyramid, they felt all right. Mm. So now that presented a problem. What kind of protective clothing do you need to get down there? Now he tells the story, and I hate to repeat what he's saying because I don't know if, if if it's factual or not. Right. But he said they had to get an actual level A hazmat suit, mm -hmm. sure, which did protect them from whatever the. The, the the ray or waves or or, or kind of energy energy that was down there yeah probably energy but they couldn't find an entrance into the pyramid so uh it was just there and his team went out and they brought in other scientists and he said then he doesn't know what happened after that and there's very little you can find out even on the internet i mean i know linda howell and others have talked about it sure. uh and what it was for who built it Maybe, maybe Tim would know. What do we know? We know that um, the planet itself goes through certain cycles of, of civilizations, which means before we have this, you know, human species uh, on the planet, there is some kind of forgotten civilization that goes uh, back to a different version, a, a, a previous cycle of this planet. We can see uh, that the magnetic field of Earth has shifted in some way as well. They are all gone. They're all gone. We're talking about in South, uh, South America about uh, 80 million uh, houses and, and um, uh, buildings that could, you know, people. 
um, and uh, they they haven't ever found um, skeletons or people there. They're just gone. So um, there are there are not only pyramids in Egypt, but they are all over the place on the planet. And yeah. the way we understand it is that uh, all these uh, pyramids um, they create some kind of electric current. And they connect all these uh, cities um, uh, around around the globe, so that people could, you know, benefit from the energy that came from those pyramids. So uh, since we know that there was some kind of, you know, civilization people uh, in Antarctica when it was a Mediterranean location, they also have built this pyramid, um, and they had a space in order to make direct contact with um, ETs uh, and different other species as well. And uh, we see clear evidence uh, um, even today in the, in the uh, ancient places for that. Do we know who that was and how they look? No, we don't, because they're gone. There's no trace of them. We don't know if they were, uh, they were uh, human or something. Or how they we just know what they left and that they were there and that they went on. And this is probably going to happen with this version uh, of this planet as well at some time. Did ever put a date on that civilization in Antarctica? Well, we can clearly define time uh, for about 15,000 years. If we go earlier than that, we see that we have too many different observable perspectives on time, so we get um, some kind of paradox where things don't seem to, you know, fall into place. And even if we go way back, then we see um, that it's getting illogical even more. So that is a, that is a problem, and um, the way I would define it is that reality itself comes in cycles on this planet. Oh. Which means that we're probably talking about a version, at least this is the way we speak about it, um, uh, a, a previous version uh, of Earth where we cannot put a timestamp on it. Yes. Another interesting aspect about this pyramid, uh, prior to it being found, there were a lot of UFO sightings occurring down there. Right. And you know what? There's a person that spent the winners down there. There's just a skeleton team at Myrtle uh, that, that the, you know, the United States base that stays down there during their winter or oh, okay. summer just to maintain the equipment and so forth. And, uh, he was a scientist, a botanist, I believe, and he would talk about these strange lights occurring that would be flying over. Now, he knew there wasn't any aircraft coming right. in. There was nothing from Earth that could fly around during a particular time during their winters down there. But he saw these lights. He never saw them in the summertime. He never saw them in the December time frame area. He only saw them in the winter. Now, they could fly in all weather. I'm sure that was without, uh, uh, they could fly in regardless of what the weather is. And they wanted to hide themselves from us. And maybe they were visiting that pyramid. And there's other stories about lights coming out of, of, uh, of the, the ice. Richard, it could have been also uh, an alien reproduction vehicle made by the Germans? I haven't heard. Uh, I know we, uh, we United States government, got uh, during the time frame of just after the war, we brought a number of German uh, scientists yeah. to the United States. And 
one of the documents, a very interesting document that I read while I was at Mainz University, was uh, a document written by a particular scientist, and it talks about <laughs> and space, and it has a phrase, space travel. Now, this is, a, this is 1944 that was written, this document was written, in 1944. That's impressive. Yeah. Now, you can't find any other reference to space travel in any other kind of documents that I've ever seen. Uh, and I'm pretty much a mil military history buff. Uh, so, what did they know about space travel then that we didn't know about? Was there a possibility that a craft prior to 1947, because that's where my time frame, my timeline starts, but was there a craft before 1947 that the Germans recovered and they were experimenting with? Now, the technology wasn't advanced enough for maybe them to understand it, but maybe they were trying to. Maybe the bell that was in Germany, maybe that was a, a PT craft. And I would be interested to know what uh, what you think of that. Yeah, so basically the SS was the first military brand that, that has a special department for looking into UFO cases, which is at least, so CIA was founded in 1947. Um, it was, I, I guess, 1942 when uh, the SS had a full organized uh, section for looking into those cases. Um, so they basically knew there is uh, reality to the UAP and UFO phenomena and uh, they were interested in getting their hands on it. Did they make contact? We don't know. What we, at least I don't know. What we know is that they were interested in remote viewing much earlier than the CIA ever got their hands on it. So they had a department for that. And this was totally normal to them, no, no reason at all for ridicule or something. They had a special department uh, for remote viewing submarines uh, in the World War II in the Navy uh, in Germany. So they did that and they pinpointed all these uh, US American um, uh, boats. Later on, the Allies got their hands on the radar system, which makes things you know, a lot easier. Um, but that was the way the Germans um, did it. They used pendulums in order to find them, and they were successful with that. Um, so what we know is there were groups that were trying to remote view information, and we assume that they got all the information they needed to build a, a functional flying alien craft uh, through remote viewing those uh, technology and they build it and basically operation high jump we see that potentially the germans have finished their own working fleet uh two years later you know and the ironic tim spoke about this earlier ironic thing about hitler was he was so fascinated with the psychic research psychic phenomena uh the paranormal side of it that you know he sent SS uh, operatives all over the world to collect whatever he could. You know, he had his own psychic uh, advisor. And, and we know from the history of remote viewing, of course, it didn't actually call it remote viewing back in we those days. We should ask Germany to share with viewing. the rest of the world the what, they, what they found. talks about the German program in 1941 up, up mm -hmm. to 1944 about remote viewing. Right. Uh, and, they, and they also talk about, you know, Himmler actually spoke with one of his generals 
Um, and there's a, a private, uh, it's in the archives, there's a uh, letter talking about Himmler's conversation with this other German general. Uh, and this is in the late uh, 44, right up in, maybe into 45. I think it was dated in February of 1945, the letter, was about all this, the magic weapons that we need to relocate. Now, it doesn't mention where or doesn't right. mention anything about that, but as Tim said, they had to get out of Germany. I think Himmler knew, and as several of the other German generals knew, that the war was going, coming to the end. They, they, they weren't going to survive. The Third Reich was going to survive. So they, they had to move things out. Now, and there's another plan about the Fourth Reich and what, where they were going to set up base and, and counter all this. But anyways, where did they take all these magic weapons? I can remove you. Uh, Antarctica. That's Antarctica. So now I have a question to you, Rick. Are there still Nazis down in Antarctica nowadays? <laughs> that's, my that's, a good, that's a good question. Um, I want to hear your opinion. I, on that. I, uh, I think what I've read and what I've studied, and, and a lot of it is conjecture. I can't, I can't, can't say for a fact. I mean, I've spoke to a lot of people about this. Um, is there a... Uh, subterranean uh, uh, civilization down there. There's a lot of evidence. I mean, there's photographs. There's some guy had a website with all these photographs, and he could have made them up. I don't know. But it showed a civilization under Antarctica, deep under Antarctica, actually supposedly under this, this pyramid. And if there were, I think, the obviously the relatives, uh, the people that are alive down there would be relatives of, of the Nazis, uh, the, the former generals. Because in the administrative control of the world, that, that, that document that Hitler had mentioned, he, or, 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 wrote, or somebody else wrote it for him, How to Conquer the World, and I can't remember exactly, you know what I'm talking about, that, that document, he talks about Antarctica. Of course, he talks about the North Pole, he talks about Canada, he talks about, he didn't go great deal in the United States because he doesn't, he, you know, even though Hitler was irrational at times, he was a rational person knowing an invasion in the United States probably wouldn't, work, wouldn't have worked. Right. But Canada, he thought, could be invaded in Mexico. And he had them on top of the list. But he also talked about <laughs> Antarctica, how to build a community in Antarctica. And, of course, this was an early, early reign. But, um, you know, who knows? That, that, there could be. 2014, 15, 16, 17, and on, we have reports of world leaders, religious leaders, visiting Antarctica, even the astronauts, our president has been there. What's going on? I believe it's it's the pyramid. It's they, definitely a show and tell of something. It's absolutely, absolutely a show and tell of something. I want to know. There's, I know that in 2013, two representatives from the Vatican went down. That's right. And they yeah. and they spent a lot of time down there. They were taking on ex, expeditions. They didn't say where, but where would you think they would take? We take it. I think from 1999, when we discovered the pyramid, until 19, uh, 2013, there's been a lot of advanced uh, exploration of that pyramid. We probably figured out how to get in there. We probably figured out how to get around down there. And what we discovered down there probably would amaze everyone. And I think they brought the religious leaders and other world, I know representatives from a lot of different countries that went down there in 2015. They had that big uh, thing down there. Uh, so, but they haven't sh shared it with us yet. No, right. Their lips are sealed. 
What, what do you think is going on down there in town? Isn't it rare that <laughs> they bring all these politicians uh, down to Antarctica and no one cared for Antarctica until the treaty um, and uh, before Operation High Jump and suddenly everyone is interested. I can only assume, I don't know, I don't know. I, I think if there's uh, indeed a civilization and there are rumors going on that... Um, nations um, that there's a uh, secretive contract um, which United Nations right. um, you know uh, I think you can't even um, join the United Nations if you don't sign that treaty that you will not go to Antarctica yeah is that true right. yeah yeah. You're not, mm. yeah you won't yeah yes so if the the um, rumors are correct that they have acknowledged the existence uh, of a fourth uh, Reich down there, um, and they must not tell some uh, nobody basically. Then um, maybe some of these meetings that we've seen in order mm -hmm. to prepare for you know uh, disclosure all around the world, in, in Africa, uh, Australia, Bel Belgium, United States, Canada. Um, maybe they have also, you know, taken place in Antarctica, but I don't know. One of my real good friends who passed away a few years ago, Robert Dean, um, command, uh, uh, Sergeant Major of the Army, he, he was a UFO researcher, a real good close friend of Wendell Stevens. What he said... Yeah, he died a, a, a couple years ago, but he talked quite openly about, uh, and what he said that he found out from a source was there was a portal, a time portal in Antarctica, and the first or, first or second expedition that actually found the pyramid went through that portal into some other dimension. They all of them managed to get back out. But can you imagine if we we found some a portal in, in in Antarctica, either at the pyramid or near the pyramid, that could put take us into a different dimension or different time right. warp or something else that we might not understand? Let's can you imagine the, the the what that would mean? And and that may be why a lot of countries have to sign that they're not going to go down there because there's some kind of danger down there. I tell you something, I've seen documents where they have brought an immense amount of um, so-called uh, life-born children, which was the program of the Nazis for, um, you know, gifting children to the Fuhrer and the, the country. Yeah. And, and you, we've seen the list, they have brought an immense amount Uh, of these children down to Antarctica What? with no relatives no one would miss them no traces uh, they've deleted all the traces and um, we've also seen documents that they have brought a group of female psychologists down there because it indicates that that what, what you are talking about could have been found by the Nazis down there already And they they are talking about strange phenomena down there, and they need those um, psychologists in the in the papers where they demand their need for psychologists in the navy, which is rare. You normally don't have female psychologists on a, a right. naval ship at that time. 
Hitler basically he was against uh, female soldiers or females uh, on um, naval ships and they brought them down as well because they said there are reality I'm quoting here reality shifting effects down in Antarctica and they need those psychologists that could be the portals that's the portal huh? that's the portal thing and uh, you know Robert Dean had some statements about that portal right. and uh, that some of our people went in uh, it affected him Uh, they did get out, according to him That's and according to his sources. Uh, but but that could be uh, why the, the Germans, when they established their base down there in 1936 and 1937 time frame, they found it. If they have found a UFO and a pyramid down there, that's something they would keep super secret. But yet, they're parading all these politicians, religious leaders down there to check it out. Why is that? Well, if I was running some kind of an intelligence operation or some form of a briefing program to get money or to get right. uh, cooperation from other governments or other entities, I could see how they could bring him down there, mm -hmm. uh, give him a little bit of information, but not tell him the entire story. Brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. Just to keep their interest and and maybe get money yeah, the or get a, a funding or a cooperation, because let's face it. Uh, no country has unlimited funds, and so we want cooperation from different entities, and so uh, different countries. And we have brought the representatives from Vatican, pretty rich, uh, and, and other countries down there. I don't know the exact list of the countries, uh, other than Germany, I know, and and, uh, and Canada, and and uh, and some other countries in Europe. So. I would manufacture an operation to bring him down, give him a little bit of briefing, give him a little bit of information, but not tell him all. And maybe give him a little bit of real information and a lot of disinformation. disinformation right. Because in an operation, a, a counterintelligence operation or a counterespionage operation, you, you or any kind of intelligence operation, you want to give a little bit of good stuff with a lot of the bad stuff. So it piques their interest. Right. And I think that's probably what, what we were, we're doing. Now. Yeah, I agree with that. So let's summarize what we've talked about and maybe add a little bit of the future of Antarctica. Well, first of all, we know the Germans went down there. I know we know their base was established. We've established bases. We've tested weapons down there. We opened up some, some cavern under the ice. We've located a pyramid. Now what do we do? We experiment. We research, we find the answers to that pyramid. What's the future? Uh, maybe we did find a portal down there, and now we're trying to dictate what the future is going to bring to mankind through that portal. Excellent, excellent. Well, gentlemen, what an astounding um, show this has been. Looking forward to uh, doing some more with it. Rick, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, Emory. And Tim, it's always a pleasure having you. Thank you, Emory. I'm Emory Smith, and this is Cosmic Disclosure. Until next time. Next on Cosmic Disclosure. I had access to information pertaining to the exploration of the pyramids by the United States government. This person will come out six hours later and thought it was they were only in there for 20 minutes. They opened uh, an underground chamber and found a still living ET being. What we wanted to know was what happened to the ET. and experimented on it. Fucking put it in a jail cell. We do with everything else.
want to hear that one. Back next. Hopefully. Cosmic Disclosure, we're with Richard Doty, a retired counterintelligence agent who served in the Air Force Office of Special Investigations. Also joining us is Tim, a tactical advisor to covert analysts trying to understand the missions and strategies of non-human intelligences on our planet. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you. The pyramids have been the world's greatest mysteries. Can you talk about any military or agencies that have obtained information or artifacts from them? Yes. Recently, I had access to information pertaining to the exploration of the pyramids by the United States government uh, as far back as the 1930s. Uh, we gained access to some information from some source in the 1930s. And back in those days, very little was known about the pyramids. The Egyptians knew uh, what they were, obviously, and they've done their own exploration, but not as detailed as we did. We sent a secret team in to the pyramid area, the area of Giza and, and the other pyramids in Egypt to explore them. We knew they were something special back then. We did a little bit of it at a time. We went back some years later, uh, a few years later, and explored more. Then unfortunately, World War II occurred, and we had to stop that. Now, take over the Germans. The Germans were highly interested in the pyramids. They sent a number of expeditions down there. Some uh, we can read about today and some that are pr probably still hidden away in the archives. Indiana Jones uh, supposedly is based on an actual incident involving U.S. intelligence interfering with uh, the German intelligence during the early days of World War II. Right, I remember. I'd like to hear from Tim on that. Uh, what we know is that um, the Germans at that time were pretty interested in not only pyramids, but um, mostly every kind of um, mysterious uh, fact of history uh, on the earth. And um, the Germans, Hitler sent troops to Egypt. They had rumors about a um, certain civilization that could have used and built the uh, pyramids way back. Um, and also they had this kind of mystical thinking that they wanted to do research on. What they basically uh, found that um, these pyramids either could have been used or have been used as power plants or power devices. So this is something uh, the Germans became aware of. And we can see this is the time when Nikola Tesla already had done extensive research on um, high-frequency uh, energetic power, and the physics were ready for that. So the Germans at that time basically had a loose, already loose idea about what they were going to find there. After World War II, uh, once the Central Intelligence Agency were, was formed in 1947, uh, in the early 50s, uh, the CIA sent a team back to the uh, pyramids. Uh, this time, they, they spent a lot of time on the Sphinx 
and another pyramid, they found that if they placed a signal collector, now back in those days, a signal generator wasn't, wasn't found yet, and that's something that generated frequencies or gathering them, but they had something crude, and they were finding that there were frequencies coming out of these pyramids, and they couldn't figure out why. They first thought there was some type of maybe a radio station or something that was interfering with them, but they didn't have the technical equipment mm-hmm. during that time period to analyze the, the, those signals. Later on, in, in 1959, they went back with a really detailed, uh, well-manned team of scientists, even some Egyptians, and they went into the, the first time they actually entered these pyramids. They found a way to enter them. And in the pyramids, they detected hundreds and hundreds of signals being generated. They couldn't understand where they were coming from, thinking that maybe there was some sort of transmitter inside these these pyramids, but they couldn't find it. They didn't know how, that, how it worked. And of course, our technology back in the late 50s wasn't advanced right, as it yeah. is today. Mm-hmm. So later on, in 1967, they went back with other equipment, and they detected unique frequencies. The thing about that, the unique frequency coming out of these two main pyramids that they were looking at, and also the Sphinx, was that they were the exact same frequencies that they found coming out of a pyramid in southern Mexico. So how can that be? And how can there be the same frequencies, and how are they being generated? That's something that uh, Mm. they've later uh, determined, but uh, Tim, do you know you know about this these frequencies that are being generated out of these pyramids? Yes, indeed. So um, we did some um, studies on the pyramids uh, quite recently, a um, few years back. We found that by the way it has been built, that they um, naturally attract certain. Uh, ions from the atmosphere because what we know is that um, the planet itself has certain layers where you have more and more frequential uh, you know ions that are positively and negatively charged and you have a lot of voltage uh, so to speak going on there so uh, the way the pyramids are built um, up to the material they are using uh, they create a natural flow um, uh, from this, uh, from the top to the bottom. Um, you have different materials at different stages of the pyramid, and it kind of guides these natural occurring uh, energies um, pretty much down this machine. So, yes, there seems to be a natural current that comes from these pyramids, but through somebody having destroyed the outer cover, which used to be around the, the pyramid, um, the ions that are getting charged cannot be held inside of the pyramid, which is the actual functional mechanism the pyramids need in order to fully function. Someone has broken uh, the, um, this cover, and due to that, um, they are out of out of power and they do not work anymore because the ions just get loose. That coincides with what some of the top scientists who were working for the Central Intelligence Agency and, and other agencies found when they went to, uh, to pyramids back in the 80s. Uh, 
Now, over the years, the U.S. government has conducted a, a number of secret programs, and I don't, I don't know if the Egyptians uh, were aware of these. I'm, pro- I'm sure they probably have uh, now, but where they went in and, and collected artifacts inside these uh, pyramids. I mean, there's a, like 118, I believe, pyramids in Egypt, and they found uh, some of the pyramids to be uh, built with a, as Tim said, a sheath that maintained or collected energy inside. And then there was some way that that energy was then dispersed. They found that when they went inside these, these pyramids, some of the most remote pyramids that few people know about, and some that have been damaged over the years, uh, the thousands of years, uh, they found really unique things about these, these damaged pyramids where uh, the team uh, would go in and they would lose time. They would go in and they'd, they'd go in at a, and they'd, after a while they would time, there'd be a clipboard with somebody would, right, would yeah. and they would put a, a tag on the back of that person. Okay, you went in at, mm-hmm. at, at, at 1,300 hours uh, using military time. And then they'd time that person, and that person would keep his watch. Well, then next thing you know, this person will come out six hours later and thought it was they were only in there for 20 minutes. Well, how did that happen? How, 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 did, they, how did they miss time inside? Not the pyramids that were not damaged, but the ones that had been damaged. So scientists studied that phenomenon for, for many, many, many years, writing all sorts of different uh, 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 papers on un- trying to understand frequencies. Yeah. Scientists, theoretical physicists, even the Institute for Advanced Studies, where I worked with Dr. Putoff, mm-hmm. they studied that phenomenon, trying to understand why. Time displacement. Why there was time displacement. And you would talk to these people when they come mm-hmm. out, sure. and they'd say, and, and, and they would say, yeah, okay, I went in, it's, it's mm-hmm. you know, one, uh, uh, 1,400 hours, an hour later. And the monitor on the outside, and they've been in there six hours. How can I, how can they be? So is there some kind of a time warp? Is there some kind of a stargate? Did they go in through a portal where they went not in this dimension, but in in another dimension? Did it disrupt their thinking and their ability to rationalize time? These are all questions that scientists are trying to answer, answer today. Richard, do we know what those frequencies are and could they be measured? Yeah, they were measured, and we know what they are. Uh, some of the information is probably still classified, mm-hmm. but they're up in the in the gigahertz range of frequencies. And uh, I'm not a frequency expert, but I know gigahertz is somewhere around satellite frequencies that they use to communicate with satellites. So they're in a wavelength that didn't exist, or we didn't know existed. Uh, you know, thousands of years ago during the Egyptian period and when these things were built. Uh, you know, 5,000 years ago, there was nothing known about frequencies, obviously. And over the years, we're still learning about frequencies. Now we're talking about a terahertz uh, frequencies. It's, it's beyond the gigahertz frequencies. So we know what the frequencies are, and that's how we measure them, comparing them, uh, the frequencies coming out of the Egyptian pyramids to the ones that are coming out of the Mexico pyramids. Now, I'm sure they measured the, the pyramids in other locations in, mm-hmm. in Central America. I know that they did an expedition to Belize 
to measure that pyramid, but I, I don't know about Peru, and I, I, I don't have any information on that. But they know what the frequencies are, and they're studying them. Did we learn anything from Iba 1 about the pyramids? Yes, we did. During the time Iba was here, and after we were able to, to implant something in his, uh, his throat in order for, right. for him to speak, he quickly, of course, learned English. Uh, it was crude, but we could understand him. What he told us after he learned what our physics were crudely in our times periods, he explained that there were uh, structures. He didn't call them pyramids, but he called them structures around the world that were built by a cooperation between humans and the ETs, which we would call pyramids all over the world. He didn't know our geography, but he refers, when we showed him maps, uh, when his handler showed him maps, he quickly grasped the, the locations and said, yes, we assisted in the construction of some of these what you call pyramids. Hmm. And he said there were navigational beacons. There were how we navigated. And it wasn't just Earth. Other planets they visited, they built some kind of a structure where they, where they could navigate now, it might be crude to us, but if it was a sophisticated uh, 5,000 years ago, uh, it, it was something that their technology had developed then. Is the navigation, uh, Richard, amongst the stars or navigation around the planet? It was a navigation around the planet. It's for other, uh, other spacecrafts visiting Earth to hone in on, such as the Middle East. Now, one of the things that uh, even later on, uh, before he passed away, told us was they were very interested in the Middle East. That Now, they didn't name countries or anything like mm -hmm. that. But on the map, on our map, once he figured out where he was and, and, and so forth, the navigational system, they were very interested mm -hmm. in the Middle East. Why was it so special to him? Uh, there's some sort of healing powers that he was mm -hmm. trying to... to us uh, that uh, that could occur in the sand, really sandy areas such as the Middle East. And I don't know that we fully understood, and I don't know uh, that what he was telling us or that he fully understood what we were trying to get out of him, but there were healing powers that were, that were present in the Middle East that wasn't present at other locations. And the Middle East, of course, occur, uh, uh, included uh, Egypt. Oh, I see. Have you heard of healing powers from the pyramids? Uh, and 
through your connections with extraterrestrials. Yes. So basically, what we found out through um, extensive uh, extensive communication with um, non-terrestrial com um, intelligence is that the very first pyramid, which was uh, the one in Giza, the great one, um, was mostly built outside of time. So this is something that uh, it defies, so to speak, reality in, in a way that there's an equivalent outside of time, um, uh, which is like a pyramid um, like a turnover, right? right? But we then quickly learned that the pyramid itself not only functions, not only had one function or two or three, but a multitude of functions. It's a super clever design, which is uh, in fact um, made by an intelligence that has no representation in 3D. It's, it's something that is outside of reality. Uh, and enables reality the way we perceive it now. But they told us it stabilizes the way the planet works. It indeed has healing capabilities. Um, it had enhancing meditative um, powers, which can be used in order to gain access uh, back and forth um, with source itself. It also functions as a power supply system that uh, has been that connects all these different structures around the planet. There was more than one function, uh, and we got our hands on certain plants um, where you can see that there are more than those chambers uh, that we officially know of. Right. Uh, one of the things that we found. Yeah. Um, the, the U.S. government found in some of the artifacts, our government thinks that some of these artifacts that we found inside these pyramids were used to facilitate healing. Uh, without that particular device, uh, there wouldn't be any healing. I think mm. uh, uh, a person well known to Gaia, Johnny Enoch, talked about this, that these, these, these devices, these sticks, these, these cones, these things that were found inside the pyramid, deep inside the pyramid, and some secret chambers for some kind of healing powers. But if you take these outside at the pyramid, they were, they didn't do anything. And and the same way with the, the frequency generation. If you took some of these artifacts outside and took them to another country, brought them back to the United States or, or some laboratory right. in Egypt, Nothing. they didn't generate any frequencies. Mm. Only inside the pyramid, somehow, and I, I don't know it's how. It's charging them somehow, huh? I, exactly. There have been experiments on, uh, you know, years ago where they placed batteries in, in the pyramid and they charged and other things have charged. So it has some kind of healing uh, a generation of energy powers, as, as Tim talked about. You mentioned sand contributes to healing in the Middle East. Could you explain that? Well, Eben didn't fully explain that to us, but okay. he was fascinated with... Uh, us knowing about the pyramids and, and the questions that, that we were asking him, but he centered his his attention on the Middle East and telling us that the sand, and once he explained what it was, we knew exactly what he was talking about, contained some kind of healing powers. And like I said earlier, I don't know that we fully understood what he, how he was explaining it. And uh, so 
there's some type type of healing powers. Now I know they brought him sand, but that was my next being, question. Yeah. Being in Los Alamos, <laughs> the sand came from probably white sand yeah, white or sands. New Mexico. Right. Uh, and I don't know. I I don't have any information. I never read any of the detailed uh, mm -hmm. detailed debriefings about wh whether that sand helped or not. But he specifically told the handler, uh, the captain that was his handler, that the Middle East are showing us where the Middle East was. The sand there generated healing powers for them, for the Ebens. Must be a frequency-based uh, you know, reflection or something that the sand is giving off. What do you think, Tim? What we do know is that um, the materials that have been used... Okay. So we're going to listen to a Gaia show about disclosure of Anactica with Brad Olson. With unusual findings and even more fascinating tales, Anarctica is rousing intrigue across the globe. Brad Olson has returned from a 26-day expedition through this frozen land in search of evidence of Eden craft. Remnants of antediluvian civilizations shares images of anonymous, anomalous structures that do not appear to be naturally formed. Well, welcome to Beyond Belief. I'm joined by author and public speaker Brad Olson, who will be discussing his very latest trip to Antarctica, where he spent days searching for crafts buried deep into the ice, ET civilizations, and the hole to the inner Earth. Brad, welcome back to Beyond Belief. Well, thanks, George. It's always great to be back and talk with you about these very interesting subjects. How do you end up getting to Antarctica? What's the route that, that you take? The route I took was through southern Argentina, which is a town called Ushuaia, which is the gateway to Antarctica. It's about 90% of all ship traffic goes through Ushuaia, both cruise ships and sailboats, which I had the opportunity to go down on a 14-person sailboat. Docks down there in the South Pole and everything else, huh? Well, there are docks at uh, some of the stations, but uh, a cruise ship port in Ushuaia and also a yacht dock where we were able to meet a captain and on the spot get signed up for a trip that was going down there. When you get there, is it cold? It is cold, but mm -hmm. it's a bit of a misnomer that it's freezing cold every day. We actually had two days down there where it was t-shirt weather. We were up on the deck in our swimsuits and uh, getting a little bit of a suntan. <laughs> we even did the polar plunge, jumping in the Arctic water with icebergs no. floating around. We did, How yeah. cold was that? Oh, below freezing, but mm. uh, you, well, didn't you didn't stay out. in there long, did you? Not for very long, no. Now, you went down there back in 2019. How long did you stay? It was a 26-day trip, but it took four days to get down there, crossing the Drake Passage, and we caught a storm going in. So seasickness was prevalent throughout the ship. Uh, only a few people that didn't get it. Fortunately, they didn't because they were able to sail the boat. Six days to get back because we had to tack against the wind. Once you got there, what did you start looking for? Well, we first got to the South Shetland Islands, and there are many bases there, including the Polish base Arktowski. And we were on a Polish vessel out of Gdansk, Poland, with 11 Poles and three Americans. So they had pre-set up uh, our meeting 
with the base. And we arrived with vegetables and fruit for the base, and they welcomed us in and let us take showers and had meals with them and a couple nights of playing music and drinking. It was quite nice to get off the boat after that very rough, stormy sea passage. Well, it was smart bringing the fruit, because without that, no showers, right? Well, I guess that was just a, a complimentary gift, but uh, yeah, they were very appreciative. What kind of research did you do before you went down there? Well, I've been researching Antarctica for years, but especially on the trip leading up, collecting maps, looking at Google Earth, going through just about any information I could get. And then, of course, when we were down in Ushuaia, I started talking to ship captains, asking them if they knew anything about a craft under the ice, antediluvian civilizations, perhaps uh, giants or uh, giant fauna being taken out of the ice, being excavated. The resounding response was no, that people just didn't know about this. It's not to say that it couldn't be there, but they just didn't know. And then we were going to the far northern tip of the Palmer Peninsula. Antarctica is a big continent. It's, it's huge. The fifth largest in the world. Yeah. So the, the, the distances are quite vast to try to go to some of these inland locations. There have been rumors that the Nazis, after World War II, fled to Antarctica, went under the ice with their subs, and started building bases and things. Did you see anything like that while you were there? Well, that's the new Schwabenland region of East Antarctica, which is basically directly below South Africa, which, of course, during World War II was a fascist country itself, sure. and we're supporting the Nazis going down there. George, when I was looking at maps of... Antarctica before my trip, I came across some Cold War era maps, and the Nazis never left. They still had West German bases in New Schwabenland. Wow. Yeah, including this region called the Conan base, which I found was the most fascinating and perhaps the best evidence for some kind of craft under the ice. Yeah, tell me about that base. How big well, is it? It's inland. It's only seasonal. So right now, it's mid-April. Everybody's getting out of Antarctica for the season. There's only a skeleton crew on the remaining bases. Only 1,000 people on the whole continent. The fifth largest continent of the world, only 1,000 people oh. there. And Conan is one of those seasonal bases. So they have already left and gone to the Neumeyer base, which is the other German base, which is in New Schwabenland. And so the Conan base... In 2013, and when you say Conan base, I'm expecting equipment and building. Very long. What did you start looking for? Well, we first got to the South Shetland Islands, and there are many bases there, including the Polish base Arktowski. And we were on a Polish vessel out of Gdansk, Poland, with 11 Poles and three Americans. So they had pre-set up. Uh, our meeting with the base and we arrived with vegetables and fruit for the base and they welcomed us in and let us take showers and had meals with them and a couple nights of playing music and drinking it was quite nice to get off the boat after that very rough stormy sea passage well it was smart bringing the fruit because without that no showers right well i guess that was just a, a complimentary gift but uh yeah they were very appreciative what kind of research did you do before you went down there? Well, I've been researching Antarctica for years, but especially on the trip leading up, collecting maps, 
looking at Google Earth, going through just about any information I could get. And then, of course, when we were down in Ushuaia, I started talking to ship captains, asking them if they knew anything about a craft under the ice, antediluvian civilizations, perhaps uh, giants or uh, giant fauna being taken out of the ice, being excavated. The resounding response was no, that people just didn't know about this. It's not to say that it couldn't be there, but they just didn't know. And then we were going to the far northern tip of the Palmer Peninsula. Antarctica is a big continent. It's, it's huge. The fifth largest in the world. Yeah. So the, the, the distances are quite vast to try to go to some of these inland locations. There have been rumors that the Nazis, after World War II, fled to Antarctica, went under the ice with their subs, and started building bases and things. Did you see anything like that while you were there? Well, that's the new Schwabenland region of East Antarctica, which is basically directly below South Africa, which, of course, during World War II was a fascist country itself, sure. and we're supporting the Nazis going down there. George, when I was looking at maps of... Antarctica before my trip, I came across some Cold War era maps, and the Nazis never left. They still had West German bases in New Schwabenland. Wow. Yeah, including this region called the Conan base, which I found was the most fascinating and perhaps the best evidence for some kind of craft under the ice. Yeah, tell me about that base. How big well, is it? It's inland. It's only seasonal. So right now, it's mid-April. Everybody's getting out of Antarctica for the season. There's only a skeleton crew on the remaining bases. Only 1,000 people on the whole continent. The fifth largest continent of the world, only 1,000 people oh. there. And Conan is one of those seasonal bases. So they have already left and gone to the Neumeyer base, which is the other German base, which is in New Schwabenland. And so the Conan base... In 2013, and when you say Conan base, I'm expecting equipment and buildings and things. Is that what's, what's there? Well, according to the Antarctic Treaty, you can't leave anything there permanently. So everything is always in a temporary state. And oftentimes in these seasonal bases, they'll just pull everything out. So it'll look like hardly anything's there if they're not doing any research uh, between seasons. And if you went to Google Earth right now, you would just see what looked like circus tent poles uh, popping up that presumably are hoisting up a giant tarp covering up what could be something very interesting under the ice. I'm going to take a look at some pictures with you on this uh, base mm. and you kind of describe what we're looking at. Here. Sure. Let's look at our first picture. What is this? Well, this is what it would look like. These would be those tent poles holding up uh, like a circus tent, as best as I could describe it. All right, now, Brad, here's our second picture. What are we looking at here? Well, it was clearly some kind of excavation on the top there because all the snow and ice has been perturbed. You can also see uh, just a little off the picture there is a landing strip and then a route which looks like snowmobile tracks coming down to this area where they're doing some excavation and some work. How big is this area we're looking at? Well, this would be about a mile or so across. I understand the craft that you see on the bottom there is about uh, half a mile long. So there's something down there that is not symmetrical uh, or, or in such a way that it looks like it's fabricated. 
And you're saying when you say there's something down there, you mean under the ice? That's correct, because when they covered it up, it's uh, just the tent poles that you can see on Google Earth today. But this is, if you go up in the Wayback Machine, this is what you would see in 2013. How thick is this ice here, Brad? This is on top of the Polar Plateau, which is two miles oh, thick. Oh, geez, huge. Yeah. And then when you consider that Antarctica is the most actively volcanic continent in the world, you have the propensity for these large cavities to be below the ice. All right, and here's our next picture, which... Yeah, it gives you an idea of not only the size of this thing, but the symmetry involved, how all the spines of it are exactly the same on both sides. Nature doesn't create symmetry like that, George. And then you see some tracks off on both sides that people were uh, cruising around on snowmobiles, presumably. And uh, this is on these Cold War maps as well. This Conan base has been there at least since the uh, 1980s. Who built it? Well, it's unknown who built it, but who's been researching it have been the Germans. Is anybody allowed to go there? I don't think so. You'd need some kind of permission through the German government because it is their base. So they're controlling it. Yeah, and each base is kind of like an embassy is, that they're controlled by the country of origin, so you'd need permission through that country. Why the fascination with Antarctica, Brad? Well, it's kind of the final frontier, George. And as far as I know, I'm the only researcher in this field who's actually been down there to investigate some of these great mysteries. And it's chock full of mysteries. So many lost civilizations we've heard of, from pyramids poking through the ice to antediluvian civilization to these giant craft being down there. I just kind of wanted to try to get to the bottom of these things and see if anybody knew some of this uh, information. If you were to put the United States on top of Antarctica, how would the size compare? Well, it's bigger than the lower 48. It's about the lower 48 and most of Canada combined. Well, that's a pretty good size continent. Absolutely. Are you in wonderment about this continent? I sure am. It was about as close as you could get to going off planet. Things are so different down there because it is a frozen continent and 99% of the land is covered in ice. You lose all the primary colors except for blue. So there's there's no reds or greens of trees. Uh, it's just black and white and blue are the primary main colors you see down there. And it, it occurred to me one day when we were on the sailboat, I went scuba diving really deep one time at the Blue Hole in Dahab, Egypt. And you lose all those colors as well. Yeah. It's just blue and white and black when you go really deep over 200 feet. So it's, it's sort of like this other world that you get when you go scuba diving. It's quite a, a different scene of Earth than you've seen anywhere else. Michael Sala, of course, is a great researcher. And I had a chance to interview him on Beyond Belief about Antarctica and got his thoughts on what he thinks might be under the ice. Mm. The craft that you say might be down there now, that they're launching, uh, might they be what we consider to be UFOs here when we see things? Could it be those craft? Well, you know, we need to kind of differentiate between these uh, ancient motherships that came down uh, after this kind of catastrophe on, right. on Mars that kind of landed in Antarctica or crash landed in Antarctica. And those were from ETs, right? That, that was, those were extraterrestrial and they, they formed the hub of a civilization that if you 
became planet-wide. But then after the, the, uh, after the ice uh, sheets began to grow, after the catastrophe, and, and this was all buried under the ice, then you had the Germans come in um, during the Second World War building uh, a space program, uh, these fleets of spacecraft uh, that has now become a transnational program that operates out of Antarctica. And they can be very large craft, uh, a, a whole range of craft. You know, we're talking about triangle-shaped craft, dart-shaped craft. The Phoenix Lights, 1997, mile-long objects they think they saw. Might it have originated down there? Well, it, it could be. I mean, we don't know whether that was an, a genuine extraterrestrial kind of triangle or whether, because that was very large. It seemed to be much larger than the kind of uh, the TR-3B that mm -hmm. uh, many researchers have been describing, which is uh, about 600 feet in size, whereas the, the Phoenix Lights, some estimate that to be like a mile, mile wide. So we're talking about something that... If it's not extraterrestrial, it belongs to something much more advanced. Um, you know, whether we're talking about a, a Navy space program out of, say, Utah, or whether we're talking about a, a kind of transnational right. program out of Antarctica. That's amazing, Brad. What do you think of that? I have the greatest respect for Dr. Sala. We've worked together at different conferences, and we were on Ancient Aliens together one time. He has some incredible information he gave to me right before my trip. When I told him I was going to the Palmer Peninsula, he said to try to get down to Rothschild's Island. He said that there may be some kind of weather manipulation going on from this particular island. We didn't get even close, but uh, certainly I was watching down in the southern part of the Palmer Peninsula if we had seen any kind of perturbations in the clouds or uh, maybe harp can sometimes make clouds look like the bottom of uh, the sand, and we didn't see that, nor did we see any chemtrail activity or any kind of flyovers. It's very desolate down there, George. Sure is, absolutely. Do you think the Germans that are down at the Conan Station are excavating for some kind of hidden craft, like Michael was hinting at? Well, I think in 2013 they certainly were, as we could see from those Google Earth photos. Yeah. They may have gotten what they were looking for, and then they covered it up. And then when the uh, remote viewers went down there with Courtney Brown out of the Farsight Institute and said that they had gone into the craft, the remote viewers did, and said that this is nothing... Through remote viewing. Correct. Right. That this was nothing natural made, that this had been fashioned or built by some kind of higher intelligence, whether it was human or extraterrestrial, they couldn't tell. But there's something down there. So when you get the data points that match up, then I think there is more credibility to the claim that this is something under the ice. Now, the, uh, the craft that could be under there, how big do you think? Well, that's the question. As you mentioned with the uh, Phoenix Lights, about a mile long, that's a figure I keep hearing, too, about a half mile to a mile. It's huge. In, yeah, diameter. Could that be a mothership? If that's what we define them as, yeah. I mean, much bigger than any kind of craft that we know of or that we could make uh, by humans. I mean, as large as a battleship, basically. Do you think it was there and then got frozen over? Because why is it still there? Why didn't it leave? Right. Yeah, it must have either landed and couldn't take off again or landed and got frozen in the ice and has just been uh, left there for posterity. And I will go so far as to say I think the Germans chose this particular region of Antarctica because of this craft. 
because they had gone inland, they had found it in the late 1930s. And as you know, they were fascinated with the occult. They were fascinated with anything extraterrestrial they could get their hands on, including a crash in the Black Forest mm -hmm. in the 1930s and working with Mussolini, who had a craft in Italy. So they were very keen on backward engineering anything they could get their hands on. And if they had located this during the Schumacher expeditions of the late 1930s, it would have been enough reason for them to claim this area. How many countries might be aware of this kind of situation down there? Well, I think a lot of people are aware in the high government. You can't hide it, can you? You can't hide it. And if we're talking about it, because we've seen it on Google Earth, it would seem that anybody has access to this. Is the craft protruding out at all? Well, it had been in 2013, as we saw, but then they put some kind of covering over it. was over a cover it. over it. Yeah, and the last time I went to those GPS coordinates, it had looked like the first slide we saw with just like all these circus tent poles So this out. craft is pretty high up on the, on, on, on the surface. Right? Yeah, which may lead us to think that perhaps it's not as old as it could be, because if it's on the top of the polar plateau, instead of under, correct, being very old and being underneath, that uh, perhaps it's, it's, it's a newer arrival. What if it's still functioning? And Great question. occupants in there and they're just, you know, living, doing whatever they do. Wouldn't that be a game changer? Oh my to God, find that huge. out. Will yeah. we ever find this out? Well, this is the great interesting question about Antarctica. Maybe disclosure is right here on planet Earth, George. Maybe all we need to do is find out what's inside that craft at the Conan base or other locations where there are presumed craft in Antarctica. Can't we get a United Nations team together? We can barely get a United Nations team together for anything, but just to go down there with the uh, Russians and uh, the Germans and us and any other country and just get this done? Or maybe they don't want us to know about it. Well, it's been they don't want us to know about it for all this time, but now that we have the new Space Force, a new arm of the uh, armed forces right. coming in, Perhaps in this new age of disclosure, something like this could happen. Tell us more about the remote viewers and some of the things they saw. Well, Courtney Brown is the head of the Farsight Institute, and they did a project where they were using their remote viewers to go directly to the Conan base to investigate. They said, first, that it was certainly nothing natural made, and, and that's quite evident by the symmetry we saw in that picture. And two, they got into the chambers of this craft. I don't recall any sign of life that they saw. They certainly, I think, would have brought that up. But they did say that there were massive cavities. They were fashioned. They were built. Did they see technology? They saw technology. I wonder what that was. I don't think it was functioning, though. This particular one does seem to be defunct. So maybe they left it got in another craft and took off. Or perhaps there's more nearby that they could they could be all over the place. All over the place. That's the thing about Antarctica, George. It is such a mystery down there because you've got two miles of ice over the polar plateau. You have volcanoes that create giant cavities underneath, which create temperate sure. climates, fresh water, even the possibility of growing food if you had uh, UV lights down there. Uh, I suspect that uh, some of the craft might have been here and then something happened where it froze over mm. and they couldn't get away. 
something fast. That is a common narrative that I've heard as well, that they got trap sick for E. Brown out of the Farsight Institute and said that they had gone into the craft, the remote viewers did, and said that this is nothing through remote viewing, correct? Right. That this was nothing natural made, that this had been fashioned or built by some kind of higher intelligence, whether it was human or extraterrestrial, they couldn't tell, but there's something down there. So when you get the data points that match up, then I think there is more credibility to the claim that this is something under the ice. Now, the, uh, the craft that could be under there, how big do you think? Well, that's the question, as you mentioned with the uh, Phoenix Lights, about a mile long, that's a figure I keep hearing too, about a half mile to a mile huge. in yeah, diameter. Could that be a mothership? If that's what we define them as, yeah. I mean, much bigger than any kind of craft that we know of or that we could make uh, by humans. I mean, as large as a battleship, basically. Do you think it was there and then got frozen over? Because why is it still there? Why didn't it leave? Right, yeah, it must have either landed and couldn't take off again or landed and got frozen in the ice and has just been uh, left there for posterity. And I will go so far as to say, I think the Germans chose this particular region of Antarctica because of this craft, because they had gone inland, they had found it in the late 1930s. And as you know, they were fascinated with the occult. They were fascinated with anything extraterrestrial they could get their hands on, including a crash in the Black Forest mm -hmm. in the 1930s and working with Mussolini who had a craft in Italy. So they were very keen on backward engineering anything they could get their hands on. And if they had located this during the Schumacher expeditions of the late 1930s, it would have been enough reason for them to claim this area. How many countries might be aware of this kind of situation down there? Well, I think a lot of people are aware in the high government. You can't hide it, can you? You can't hide it. And if we're talking about it, because we've seen it on Google Earth, it would seem that anybody has access to this. Is the craft protruding out at all? Well, it had been in 2013, as we saw, but then they put some kind of covering over it. There was a cover it. over it. Yeah. yeah, and the last time I went to those GPS coordinates, it had looked like the first slide we saw was just like all these circus tent poles sticking So this out. craft is pretty high up on the, on, on, on the surface. Right? Yeah, which may lead us to think that perhaps it's not as old as it could be, because if it's on the top of the polar plateau, instead of under, correct, being very old and being underneath, that uh, perhaps it's, it's, it's a newer arrival. What if it's still functioning? And Great that question. There are occupants in there and they're just, you know, living, doing whatever they do. Wouldn't that be a game changer? Oh my we were to God, find that out? Will we ever find this government. out? Well, this is the great interesting question about Antarctica. Maybe disclosure is right here on planet Earth, George. Maybe all we need to do is find out what's inside that craft at the Conan base or other locations where there are presumed craft in Antarctica. Can't we get a United Germany. Nations team together? We can barely get a United Nations team <laughs> together for anything, but just to go down there with the uh, Russians and the Germans and us and any other country and just get this done? Or maybe they don't want us to know about it. Well, it's been they don't want us to know about it for all this time, but now that we have the new Space Force, a new arm of the uh, armed forces right. coming in, perhaps in this new age of disclosure, 
something like this could happen. Tell us more about the remote viewers and some of the things they saw. Well, Courtney Brown is the head of the Farsight Institute, and they did a project where they were using their remote viewers to go directly to the Conan base to investigate. And they said first that it was certainly nothing natural made, and, and that's quite evident by the symmetry we saw in that picture. And two, they got into the chambers of this craft. I don't recall any sign of life that they saw. They certainly, I think, would have brought that up. But they did say that there were massive cavities. They were fashioned. They were built. Did they see technology? They saw technology. wonder what that was. I don't think it was functioning, though. This particular one does seem to be defunct. So maybe they left it got in another craft and took off. Or perhaps there's more nearby that they could that could be all over the place. All over the place. That's the thing about Antarctica, George. It is such a mystery down there because you've got two miles of ice over the polar plateau. You have volcanoes that create giant cavities underneath, which create temperate sure. climates, fresh water, even the possibility of growing food if you had uh, UV lights down there. Uh, I suspect that uh, some of the craft might have been here and then something happened where it froze over mm. and they couldn't get away. Something fast. That is a common narrative that I've heard as well, that they got trapped there. Maybe an asteroid got... hit and changed the planet quickly or something. Because we've heard of these woolly mammoths being found frozen with food still in their mouths. Right. So whatever happened, they flash froze instantly. Like a pole shift just occurred just boom. and perhaps even moved the continent to its present location from a, a warmer climate because they have found fossils down there. There's a mountain called Mount Buckley. It's at the very top of the Beardmore Glacier. And that's where the Scott expedition got held up because they were collecting all of these fossils of ferns. And when they were doing the race to the pole with uh, Raoul Amundsen of Norway, who beat them there by only 35 days, the Scott party couldn't make it back to their final stash of food, and they all died on the ice where Amundsen oh, made it back to his ship. Yeah, it was, So we've had a lot of fatalities down there. Oh, it's, it's a dangerous place. It's uh, the most inhospitable conditions on Earth, and if you get stuck down there, your life is certainly in danger. What were your living conditions when you were down there? Did you stay on the ship? Every night. You did? Yep. Okay. So you'd wander onto the mainland, come back to the ship. That's right, and it's kind of a misnomer that we had to get permission to go everywhere. We had a Zodiac on the boat. We were able to go off and get close to whales, and the whales, they have no fear of humans. They come up to you instead of run away. They probably don't know what humans are. They don't. We had one Fish food. <laughs> swim right under our boat even, and uh, the penguins just have no fear of humans. You could go right up to one with your uh, iPhone to take a picture, and the mother with her little baby right there is kind of like, snap at way. you or anything like <laughs> no, that? No, not at all. They don't know what you are. What happens if all that ice melts? What do we see? Paint us a picture. We see the oldest continent on Earth, which is over 3 billion years old, on the eastern uh, plate of Antarctica. Now, when you say the oldest continent, wasn't it all formed together, this whole planet? It was all formed together. This is all part of Pangaea. Guanawana land, and it broke off. It had once been connected with New Zealand 
and Australia. It floated that far. It huh? floated that far, and it has fossil records from fossil records that match in those other countries as well. So if everything melted, might we see craft there? We might see craft there. We might see antediluvian civilization there. We might see perhaps uh, civilizations that have a way of existing under the ice. How crystal clear is the night sky down there, Brad? Oh, it's as clear as you can imagine. And of course, it's in the Southern Hemisphere, so all the stars are different. You see the Southern Cross, mm -hmm. you see the Milky Way galaxy. Yeah, it's hard to imagine, but you're right, everything's flipped over. Yeah, totally different night sky. Did you see any objects zooming by or anything like that? We did not, but we had heard reports from another base, in uh, Argentinian base, that had seen some craft the month before we were down there. And they had talked about it through the different bases, and it got to the brown base personnel and uh, kind of twisted the guy's arm a little bit to get it out of him that uh, that they had seen a, a, a sighting at one of their bases of orbs and craft, a flyover. And that base, the Belgrano 2 base where they had the sighting, is in East Antarctica, not too far away from the new Schwabenland claim of Germany. How many bases are down there, Brad? There's about 56 bases run by about uh, 25 or 30 countries. All, Those are a lot of countries. Yeah, even some really small countries like Uruguay has a base. Even What are they uh, doing? Well, they're mostly doing weather research or studying the animals, studying the climate, studying the ocean. There is a lot of climate change going on down there. Uh, there was a map that came out just before our trip from NASA that showed certain parts of Antarctica were melting very, very quickly. And other parts, paradoxically, were gaining in ice. And this could be the reason why we haven't seen huge swings in sea level rising. That could be. That somehow Mother Nature but just don't has you a way find to it unusual that there are so many countries down there working in such a desolate area? Something else is going on here. Yeah, it would sure seem so. And at the South Pole base, which is the Amundsen-Scott South Pole base, there's a huge no-fly zone over one of the portions of the South Pole. And this corresponds with what some of the whistleblowers that have spoken to Linda Moulton Howe have said, that there's a huge hole under the ice right near there, that this is some kind of entrance into the inner Earth or just some kind of massive cavity that goes below the polar plateau. Now, Admiral Byrd, when he made his so-called discovery of the hollow Earth, was going in through the North Pole, I believe, right? And it's presumed that there are holes on both of the top and the bottom. Dr. Brooks Agnew is a good friend of mine, and we're looking at doing an expedition to... He's been working on that. The he North wanted, Pole to, get, he wanted yeah. to rent a Russian trawler to get down there. He wants me to go with him, and we're going to take a look. He says he has the coordinates of the hole and the North Pole, and we know where the hole of the South Pole is, my only concern is we're probably not going to be allowed to go, that someone like the NSA, who controls a lot of things sure. concerning UFOs, might show up and say, okay, you're going to stop your boat right here. Do we have any pictures under the planet Earth? I mean, has NASA ever conducted any flybys underneath? You know, you look at the planet as a whole out in space. You've got the North Pole, the South Pole. 
but in order to see the bottom, to see if there's a hole up there, you got to get under the planet like that. Have we done that? Well, we have, and I have a couple photos in my presentation, the hidden anomalies of Antarctica that I go to conferences and show them. Are they Photoshopped? I can't tell you that for sure. Do they look real? Yeah, of course, but a lot of Photoshop does. What does it look like? Well, it just looks like a massive hole uh, in the ice. And like a drain. Like a big drain hole, oh, yeah, but yeah. so huge, George, that Admiral Byrd's account of flying a plane into it safely, turning around and coming back out, wouldn't be a problem. It's that big. Well, and you don't even know you're flying into it because of the curvature, right? Well, I think you can see it. And uh, according to Brian S., Linda Bolton Howe's whistleblower, who flew over it against orders, but they had an emergency evacuation, and that's why they did it. He said from the uh, South Pole Station, he saw tracks. It's really not that far away, only about 10, 15 miles away, and a road going down into it on the ice. So that you could take like a snowcat down into the hole on a road. And come back. And come back, or fly in and fly out. Would you say of all the continents that we have on this planet that Antarctica might be the one that has all these very strange anomalies? Well, it is, George, because we have 7.6 billion people on the planet, but only 1,000 people down in the whole continent That's of Antarctica it. right now. That's it. That's vast. It's vast. And it's the size of two Australias combined, and there's only 1,000 people. So is the entire continent ice and snow? Over 99% of the land mass of Antarctica is covered with ice and snow. Are there mountains down there? Huge mountains. There's a... The tallest mountain is Vincent Massif, and it's 14,500 feet. Okay. So you have a lot of people that want to climb all the highest peaks of the world. And so, of course, they have to go to Antarctica to climb all seven continents' highest mountains. The wonders of gravity, because you're actually standing upside down. Yeah, but you Aren't feel you? the same way. You do. <laughs> I mean, technically you are, but you don't feel different at all. Not standing at all. upside down. No, no. You don't feel that. When I was in Australia, George, they have a funny map down there they call up over, down under, and they flip the world map upside down. It looks so foreign to us because we're used to it one way. But if you think about it, up, down, below, sideways, it's all the same planet. What do you think Antarctica looked like before it got iced over? Well, that's what's really fascinating because Antarctica was once a very temperate climate. There were dinosaur species that can only live in warm climates that are unique to Antarctica, wow. that have been found only on this continent. Trees, vegetation, everything. Very unique to Antarctica. And the fossil record shows that it had once been a steaming jungle as well. So before the ice covered it, it was a very temperate, even tropical climate down there with a whole host of animal, insect, and flora species. What do you think happened to the planet to create that kind of ice sheet down there? Well, as you mentioned, with the uh, Siberian mammoths that still had food in their mouth, there was some sort of Something sudden happened. cataclysm, yeah, a pole shift that would have shifted continents around, rising, falling, volcanoes going off, tidal waves all over the place. And this could have been the opportunity of the continent to shift down to that southern hemisphere and been locked into place and then the snow and ice 
accumulated over time. Are there frozen lakes there and things like that? There sure are. There are a whole series of lakes underneath the ice, including river systems that are now being mapped out. The largest lake, Lake Vostok, is as large as Lake Ontario. Whoa! Yeah, it's huge. One of the top 10 largest lakes in the world, and it's completely locked under the two miles of ice on the polar plateau. Would you live there, or would you go stir crazy? <laughs> I would love to go up to some of these under ice uh, situations to check them out. Oh my God! Yeah. I don't know if I could live there too long, or if anybody would want to. But it would seem that it's possible with all the geothermal activities. You could take a hot spring. You could uh, be in a sort of a warmer climate, away from the harsh elements above. And I think the light would be really fascinating during the long 24-hour summer days. Sure. Of just like a, a blue hue of light Your coming from the dome. clock would be all yeah. thrown out of whack. And that's what people say who work on these year-round bases, that uh, it does start to drive you a little stir-crazy. What is under the land mass? All ocean underneath it, do you think? Well, it's like in any kind of continent, it is a landmass, but in this case, it has a large polar plateau on top of it. Now, sometimes I think of a continent of landmass, a couple miles thick, floating on top of water, but it's not shifting. Uh, in this particular case, I would assume that the, that the landmass is connected to the bottom of the seabed. Is that true? Well, it is. It, it's a very old continent. There's something holding it in place. Right? Yeah. Yeah, and, and if you look at the uh, under-ocean topography maps, you have the Mid-Atlantic Ridge, which comes down the entire length of the Atlantic Ocean. And it connects to Antarctica right in New Schwabenland, and that's where a lot of volcanic activity and hot springs are. And this is one of the uh, tectonic fault lines that travels through Antarctica as well as up the uh, Palmer Peninsula, where there are a whole bunch of volcanoes as well, and we got to visit some of those. Some uh, time ago, former Secretary of State John Kerry made a visit down there. Why in the world would he go there? What's going on there, Brad? And why would he go during the election yeah. between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. Donald Trump? Why would he go there at the most critical time for his party? And I have a friend that works at the McMurdo Station. In fact, he's just left a couple days ago, was posting a lot of his pictures on Facebook. And he was down there when Kerry was there. And they landed at McMurdo, took a day or two to acclimate, and then they disappeared for a couple days before they came back, and nobody knew where they went. So it was quite interesting that they used McMurdo as a jumping point to go further inland to some undisclosed location. Is there an airport down there? Well, there's airstrips on the ice. You can land. Uh, How do you stop? <laughs> well, I mean, is it all ice? Yeah, it's all ice, but uh, it's just like a runway. I think you can put the brakes on. and. But they don't have a concrete or anything like that. No, they don't. It's all landing on the ice. Oh, that's amazing. But they can make the runway as long as they need to make it. How would you stop on ice? flying in at two or 300 miles an hour. And there are these big cargo planes that come and go all the time. My friend uh, that worked down there, was that was his job, was loading and offloading these planes. That's truly remarkable, isn't it? Mm. Would you go again? Oh, I'd love to go again. I'd love to go down to the Nishwabenland area. And I'd like to go with a Geiger counter, George, and that is because 
Do you remember Project Argus in the late 1950s? It was these top secret yes. nuclear tests. They were saying that they were doing high atmospheric uh, down there, right? Down there yeah. in the Southern Ocean, just off the shore of Antarctica, just off the shore of New Schwabenland. But to go to New Schwabenland and go to this point two eleven, the New Berlin base or the Geiger counter, and see if they actually nuked this old German base. We've got some more looks at what could be a hole in the Antarctic area. Let's take a mm. look at some of these. Clearly, there's a hole there. That's what it looks like for sure, uh, including what might be that road. Now, how big in. do you think that is? What's the diameter of that hole? What do you think? Oh, several miles across. That I mean, big. Well, okay. look at the curvature of the Earth on top. I mean, we're looking uh, from outer space at Now, it. is that an asteroid hit? That's a good question, how it was formed. I don't have any information on that. All right, let's look at the other picture and compare that to this one here. Once again, shooting from outer space, looking down Is that on the it. hole to the right? That's it. it. That's huge. Yeah. And it, when you can compare it to the curvature of the Earth, you can see how massive it is. And there's a satellite shooting from outer space and looking down on it. I mean, why aren't these pictures being shown to the public by NASA? That's a good question. It's just like how the space station always blacks out every time there's a presumed UFO sighting from the space station. Why do they do that? They're still trying to I mean, hold that's information. that's remarkable. It really is. I mean, clearly there's a hole there. Right. I don't know how deep it goes. What do you think? Well, I, I think it would go at least down to the uh, continental plate level, which would be over two miles deep. Would there be water down at the bottom of the hole? Well, there are. There are lakes down there. There's a whole area called the Lake District because there's so many lakes. Freshwater lakes, too, as well as um, hot springs percolating up through the uh, fault line. Aside from the North Pole, are there any other areas that are just as perplexing as what we've been seeing? I think Antarctica is even more perplexing than the North Pole because, of course, that's on the Arctic Ocean and it's just ice floating on water, where this is a whole continent that is virtually unknown and unexplored. It really is the final frontier on planet Earth for exploration. Is the climate down there changing at all? It's changing very rapidly. The area we were at was showing huge sheets of ice that were melting and just dropping in elevation. And we even saw the calving of glaciers. George, it's one thing I'll never forget, these massive sides of a wall of glacier just dropping down into the water. Wow. Fortunately, we were a couple miles away. Did you away. hear it? Did you hear it? Well, first you see it, then you hear it. The sound is a little slower, right? A little slower, and then you see the waves starting to percolate yeah. out, and uh, so we had to fashion our boat to go directly into the waves, because when they hit... They're uh, like mini tsunamis, A mini tsunami is created. Well, let's look at this NASA picture, which they talk about climate change. What are we looking at here? What is, what is this shape? Is that this is the, the polar plateau in the middle. Okay. That's the Trans-Antarctic Mountains that go up the side, and that's the Palmer Peninsula where I visited. So basically that finger on top that's all red was signs of great melting, calving ice. Um, the glaciers are lowering in elevation. But the blue areas, and this, is, this was produced by NASA, those colors just represent the areas that are melting, or increasing in ice, and that's the blue area. So somehow Mother Nature knows 
to balance itself out. And that's why Miami Beach and other sea level cities have not experienced huge sea level rises. Now, is this the whole continent? Or most of it? Uh, yeah, that just gets cut off at the bottom there. But well, uh, well, for how come we can't see a hole from here? Well, I have uh, images in my presentation where Google Earth masks off certain areas. Sometimes very sloppily, they'll just put like a white. So there could be holes there. <laughs> there could be, but covered up. they're covered up. You've been traveling around the world searching for different anomalies. You've been doing this all your life. What would you say about this area compared to other spots? I've been to all seven continents now, George, and I'll say that Antarctica is unlike any other place on Earth. It's a completely frozen, desolate, otherworldly climate down there. It's like you're visiting another planet in many respects. The animals have no fear of humans, and the ice is just so vast, covering just about everything and coming right down to the water. It's a... Uh, a place that you'll never forget if you see it. Might there be a hidden submarine base down there? Well, there could be multiple submarine bases down there, and we wouldn't know it because not only would it be under the ice, it would be under the water. But uh, we do know from some, some leaked documents of the Third Reich that they had mapped out the region, including what were routes that could be taken by submarines to go to some very remote locations. They say that's the route Hitler took to escape to Argentina, assuming he did. Well, that's right. And Admiral Dolenz, who then assumed the uh, Fuhrer at the very tail end of the war, he was known as saying in 1943 that they had built an impregnable fortress for our Fuhrer in a land of ice. So this is the New Berlin base in New Schwabenland. This is the place that I would like to go to with a film crew. Maybe yourself. We can go down there on an exploration. Maybe I can do remotes for coast to coast down there. <laughs> yeah. Wouldn't that be cool? Or we'll get our buddies at Beyond Belief to put our bill. Let's go. Let's get it. Get your bills going, producers. Let's do that. How long will we have to be down there? Well, you'd want to go for at least two weeks, I think, because it's quite a distance to go. And the distances are very we vast. a big parka and stuff We like would that. have to be outfitted with very cold weather clothes. Um, and then to get the permission to go to the Conan base, I think, would be the coup d'etat on this. Is it windy trip. down there? It can be very, very windy some days. But then it could also be very temperate. Depends on the climate. Of course, seasons are opposite here. So now we're coming into springtime in the northern hemisphere. They're going into fall. And the time to go is around Christmas time until mid-February. Do they have earthquakes down there, Brad? Well, there are fault lines, so I would presume that there could be earthquakes as well. You would think that huge chunks of ice would fall off. They could, yeah. We went into this uh, caldera called um, Deception Island, and it is it's still an active volcano. The sand was steaming. Uh, had the tide not been coming in, we could have laid down in the hot spring and uh, soaked in some hot water. When you go from the ocean to a beach, Miami, California, it's kind of flat. It kind of just like eases right into the beach. In this particular case, is it flat coming from the ocean to the Antarctic shelf, or is it high, and as you approach it, it looks like a mile high or something like that? When we were coming across the Drake Passage, the first thing we saw were the massive icebergs. 
that we're counting off, some as tall as a 30-story building, and that's just a fraction of what's below. So we had to take turns doing watch to keep an eye out for these big icebergs. When we did see the first landmass of the South Shetland Islands, it was quite a relief to finally see some land, and they just rise very dramatically. The West Antarctic Peninsula that I got the opportunity to visit, that's a much newer landmass. Antarctica is actually two landmasses that are combining in the middle. The West Antarctic Peninsula, the Palmer Peninsula, that's only uh, 700 million years old. Now, that sounds like a big number. That's all, right? That's all, but compared to the 3 billion-year-old East Antarctica plate, which is much, much older. Uh, Almost as old as the planet, for crying Yeah, so, so there you have very um, soft curvatures of the land, to answer your question, whereas in East or West Antarctica, very dramatic mountains that just rise straight up out of the ocean with glaciers coming off on either side. Besides uh, reports of a craft underneath the ice, have there been any reports of UFO activity above? Well, there have been quite a few. Uh, we heard of one at the Belgrano II Argentinian base the month before we got down there. And the reason I bring it up that I think there's some credibility in this is because the two researchers that I was speaking to, they didn't want to tell me. Uh, and the one woman there, she says, no, 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 we can't tell them. She went away, and then the other guy who I spent about an hour talking to his research, he was studying the ice fish that live under the ice, a completely unique species that lives down there. He finally told me that they had seen uh, some craft and orbs over the Belgrano II base the month before. So I found that uh, credible because he was reluctant to talk about it. Brad, thanks for being on Beyond Belief. Fascinating journey. Thank you, George. Always a pleasure to talk with you. You're always traveling all over the planet, looking for different anomalies and everything else. But for people who want information, how do they find you? What's your website? So if you want to know more about me and what I'm doing, bradolson.com. And my publishing website is cccpublishing.com for all the books that I publish and some other authors under the CCC Publishing. But going through Brad Olson, O-L-S-E-N. E-N. Not an O. On the set.com, bradolson.com. <laughs> Brad, thanks again for being on Beyond Belief. Always a pleasure to speak with you, George. Fascinating to talk to somebody who's actually been to Antarctica looking for all these strange anomalies. Maybe one day I'll make a trip down there, too. You never know. I'm George Norrie, and thanks for watching Beyond Belief. Welcome to Beyond Belief. Our dear friend William Henry back with us, the Nashville-based author, investigative mythologist, who really delves into the human spirit to come up with all kinds of reasons 
that we exist and where we're going. William, welcome to Beyond Belief. Thank you, George. So glad to be here. How, how, how have you been? Very well, thank you. Well, William, and you and I have been doing this for about 17 years, starting on the radio program. Mm -hmm. And since we've been doing it, look what has happened to technology. Well, exactly. Google wasn't even in business when we first started talking, right. George. Facebook didn't exist either. These were just still figments of people's imagination. Same maybe with Amazon. Right? A well, you know? Amazon, yeah, was, it was just the book just, company. Exactly. Right. And so I remember those days very well, talking about the merger of this technology of genetic technology, nanotechnology, artificial intelligence with the human body. And back then it was, they were talking about the 2020s and 2030s is the time when this would occur. And people thought I was crazy. I used to get emails, people saying that will never happen. You well, were ahead of your time. I truly was way ahead of the curve for certain. And that's not a curve you definitely or necessarily want to be ahead of because it has some very frightening implications. There's good side to the AI. But there's also some very frightening. Well, that's absolutely true. Mm -hmm. I mean, technology that advances is amazing. It's a tool that uh, just uh, you, you, you can't do without these days. That's right. But what's the downside? Well, the downside is loss of personal freedoms, loss of uh, free will, ability to make your own decisions. This is the, the overriding concern about AI is that you're going to have an authoritarian or even a totalitarian type of governmental structure that's going to mandate right. implantation of chips or merging with AI for to, to save the species for one reason or another. Gaia Show Deep Space investigated the rapid development of AI. The technological rise has been dizzying and sometimes confusing for large groups of people. As computers have become more powerful, they've also created a new form of intelligence which is now called AI, or artificial intelligence. Many think that having machines that can do our thinking for us will be a great event for humanity. Others fear that the AI will realize that it does not need us. Ray Kurzweil, in his book, The Singularity is Near, posits that AI will become so advanced that it will create what he calls a singularity. What is that singularity? The singularity which is expected to happen sometime between now and 2030, 2035, is when these AI machines that we're building and the algorithms become smarter than we are. Maybe by a little, maybe by a lot. They may already be smarter. Well, that's, the, that's a, a definite consideration, and that's the, the trajectory that we're on now. And so the concern is, is that we will no longer be human after this event. We will enter into a post-human phase. And we're already starting to see the, the beginnings of this occurring with the coronavirus and this dehumanization. No face-to-face no face -face contact, no touching. Nothing that we know of as human is, is basically allowed at this time. And this could go on into, into the future as well. And so what we're seeing is this trend towards dehumanization and identifying less with your biological, physical self and now we're being coaxed into identifying with our virtual selves, where we're going to be meeting everybody in the virtual world, online and portals. Will AI ever have emotions? They say that, they, that it could one day have emotion. And we are now being conditioned, even by major corporations, through their commercials, to begin to think of AI as having emotions. So it's actually us, humans, that will change first. It will be the way we perceive AI that will shift, and then AI might be able to take on what we consider to be human emotions. I believe it's Elon Musk who's thinking about having chips implanted in our brains. 
this? Yes, he has this. My God, I know it. This highly secretive Neuralink project that he believes will begin human testing in early 2021, where they'll drill a hole in your skull, insert this chip inside it, and now you'll be wired to the Internet of Things. Will you do that? Absolutely not. I think people would be up in arms if they tried to mandate things like that. They will. Absolutely. We're already seeing some pushback with this because this is all... Book of Revelation, Mark of the Beast type six, of six, six. 666 and the, manda the, uh, the mandating of this technology and the sacrifice of all that we know is human in order to save the species for a future human species. Should we go back to the 1950s, William, where life was a little more peaceful and calm? Well, I think people like to think maybe not the 50s, but maybe the 90s when the Internet was just coming online and the AI wasn't controlling things. There. That seems to be a comfort zone for a lot of people. But then you have a, a new generation that's coming up, and they love AI. They love the idea that all the answers that they want are at their fingertips and that they don't have to think for themselves. Yeah, life will be easy for them. That's what they think, but they don't know the trade-off because they haven't had this human existence. You and I have enjoyed a fully human existence. And Hi there. Welcome back. <clears throat> We're listening to Mind's Touch. if anything else just poked out about maybe like somebody being rounded up like Dogie and put behind bars where he belongs. Mega reps get shredded as Dems and GOP call them out. Nice. Okay. Sounds good. Teachers of Tomorrow. I'm just calling to get more info on how to join your teacher certification program. We make joining our program these guys are single-handedly... It almost feels like there the are White three House. political parties in ago. the United States of America <laughs> right now. Democrats, mainstream Republicans, and MAGA. And I love that Democrats are going on the offense and calling out MAGA and not backing down. This new group of Democrats has always been saying, when are they going to be good at messaging, be better messengers? Let's take a look at this. Here is Democratic Congress member Jim McGovern talking to the chairman of the Homeland Security Committee, Mark Green, about this MAGA stunt to try to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas as a PR stunt while they're in a bipartisan deal, the toughest border deal in American yeah, history that MAGA Republicans at the request of Donald Trump are trying to blow up. Here, play this clip. And I would say that history is going to judge you. I don't think we need to wait for that. Voters are going to judge you in November. I think people are going to look at this hearing. They're going to look at this Republican majority's record. And they're going to vote you out of office because of your total incompetence, your, your extremism, and your refusal to work in a bipartisan way to try to get anything done around here, including the border. With that, Mr. Chairman, I yield back. And here's That's the Democratic Congress member Nagus talking to the MAGA Republican in history that Plan awesome. Security Committee, Mark Green, about this MAGA stunt to try to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas as a PR stunt while there is a bipartisan deal, the toughest border deal in American history that... MAGA Republicans at the request of Donald Trump are trying to blow up. Here, play this clip. I would say that history is going to judge you. I don't think we need to wait for that. Hmm. Voters are going to judge you in November. I think people are going to look at this hearing. 
They're going to look at this Republican majority's record, and they're going to vote you out of office because of your total incompetence, <laughs> your, your extremism, and your refusal to work in a bipartisan way to try to get anything done around here, including the border. <laughs> With that, Mr. Chairman, I yield back. <laughs> and here's a Democratic Congress member, no, Nagoose, awesome. talking to the MAGA Republican chair, Mark Green. Take a look at this. Some great cross-examination. Play the clip. Uh, Chairman Green, I have an editorial here. I'm going to enter it into the record. It's, the title is Americans are the Victims of the Impeachment Inquiry. It's an opinion piece. The subtitle, subtext is a lot of bipartisan legislation that enjoys widespread support sits gathering dust while Congress focuses on the impeachment inquiry. I assume you disagree with this? I do. You do. It's interesting. These are your words. <laughs> this is an editorial that you wrote <laughs> five years ago. During the debate about the impeachment of former President Trump, written by Mark Green, guest columnist in the Tennessean, local newspaper, I take it, in your it state. Is indeed national. Americans are the victims of the impeachment inquiry. A lot of bipartisan legislation that enjoys widespread support sits gathering dust while Congress focuses on the impeachment inquiry. It's fascinating to me that you've changed your tune. And I'll, well, I'll, no, ask that this, I'll, I'll give you a chance uh, to respond I, okay. in a moment, Mr. Chairman. I'll ask that this be entered into the record. And here, Jim McGovern goes at it again and says, look, you should be ashamed at yourself, Mark Green, and all of you MAGA Republicans for putting forward this type of trash stunt trying to impeach Alejandro Mayorkas like this. Embarrassing to our country. Play this clip. Uh, Dr. Burgess, let, let, me, um, let me just say, uh, Jim McGreen, I, I have respect for you as a as a member of uh, of this uh, of this Congress, uh, but quite frankly, um, watching reading what is before us and uh, watching all this unfold, um, I, I I think you should be ashamed of yourself for bringing this kind of trash before this committee. I mean, we are we are here because Marjorie Taylor Greene hmm. and the chock full of nuts caucus uh, <laughs> wanted us to be here. Um, okay, so that right there, Democrats. So what I mean, like there's like three parties right now. Democrat Jim McGovern. Let me show you Oklahoma's Senator Republican James Langford. So I showed you Democrat Jim McGovern. Let's go to Oklahoma Republican Senator James Langford. And here's what he says about during Donald Trump's term. I understand there's all this fan fiction out there, but there were like 4,000 border crossings every day right there. Here, play this clip. I would also remind folks, during the Trump administration, we also had days of more than 4,000 people that were illegally crossing the border under the Trump administration in 2019, and they were struggling because there's gaps and loopholes in the law. Yeah, this but Senator, you know, you know, that Donald Trump, we were at a 45-year low in illegal around. crossings under Donald Trump, and, and that's, that's just a fact. I've got the, the well, evidence dramatically fewer. A 45 year low under Donald Trump in 2019. We also had days of 3,000, 4,000, 4,500 that were happening. But nothing like what we've seen right now. Okay, let, let me just. Trying to figure out how to be able to implement it. Okay, I'm sorry to talk over you, Senator. I think we might have a, a, a little bit of a delay. Um, but okay. And here, Republican James Langford, <laughs> Senator from Oklahoma, says that, look, my job is to try to find solutions, and I guess Donald Trump wants there to be chaos for the election. Here, play this clip. Um, Donald Trump did endorse you. Um, he did. But regardless <laughs> of that, why do you think he's going after you and this border bill, considering this is the most, and I've been in this town for a lot longer than you have, this is the most 
conservative immigration compromise that I have ever seen come to this level. Previous efforts under Bush and under Obama were far more uh, permissive, far more liberal than this. Why do you think Trump's going after you? Yeah, I, I don't know, obviously, other than he, he has a different job than I have right now. His job right now is running for president, and so he's trying to be able to manage that. And obviously, a chaotic border is helpful to him in the process on that. If so naturally, Donald Trump just goes out and lies. He did an interview with Dan Bongino, the right-wing provocateur MAGA podcaster, whatever you want to call this guy. And Donald Trump said, I never endorsed James Langford, here, play this clip. Well, just uh, to correct the record, I did not endorse Senator Langford. I didn't do it. He ran, and I did not endorse him. Uh, so uh, I'm sure your person will be happy to hear that. But then, of course, Donald Trump lies about everything, and here it is where he endorses endorsement of Senator James Langford from Donald Trump. It is my great honor to give James Langford my complete and total endorsement. James Lankford is strong on the border. It is my great honor to endorse him, my total endorsement. I mean, this is one of those things where I'm just like, let's just read the data. Your Trump's <laughs> press conference, I mean, press statements. Pathological you know, liar. That's what Donald Trump said on Bongino. He's just a liar. He lies about, he lies about every single thing. And as Lankford said, Donald Trump just wants to whine about the border throughout the election and not actually did not come to any uh, solution. Here, by the way, is another clip of Democratic Congress member Jim McGovern, um, who talks about uh, how, weren't you out there speaking with uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene? Marjorie Taylor Greene claims that you said that this impeachment was going to be a foregone conclusion here by this clip. Uh, well, I, well, maybe we can ask them to produce the but, um before completion of your investigation, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is the author of this, uh, said that impeachment has been, and I quote, guaranteed to her. That was on November 30th of 2023. And she said it again, I quote, I've been guaranteed by Speaker Johnson and Chairman Greene that the host would impeach Secretary Mayorkas. Why, why would you, how would you promise her that you would impeach no matter what the evidence said? Or, or well, by that time, we've been through a lot of hearings and so reports. You, so, in, so in November, November 30th, you did promise her. No, I, I don't remember ever promising her. Is she lying? Or is she I, I don't know. I, it could be a misunderstood conversation. That happens all the time in this building. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, boy, here's Democratic Congress member Jim McGovern saying to uh, MAGA Republican Mark Green, when did you, didn't you tell your donors that this was going to happen no matter what, and then you'll see Green, just a liar, like whoever said, I misquoted him. I think it's on audio. Here, play this clip. You're right, I don't. Okay, so let me ask you this. When exactly did you decide to impeach uh, Secretary Mayorkas? Well, you know what the exact date was? Was it before or after April 18th, 2023? April 18th, 2023. Now, we... We have proceeded with an a side-phased approach, looking at this so, as fairly as before, before or after April 18th. Uh, I, I can't tell you when the when I thought this needed to happen. Well, the, the reason why I ask you is I'm, I'm looking at a New York Times article uh, that April 18, me, yes. 2023, uh, entitled, Key Republicans Tell Donors That He Will Pursue Impeachment of Mayorkas. 
Um, and they have an audio, uh, they have you on audio tape saying you would, and I quote, deliver charges to the House Judiciary Committee, which handles Good impeachment job. proceedings. I'd like to ask you to insert this article into the record. I guess the question is, why would you tell donors that you were going to impeach Secretary Mayorkas before you open an investigation? Um, uh, is there a, why would you do that? The article misquoted me. I do recall they have that. Audio. Yeah. yeah, I know. Well, they, they did misquote me. Okay, I went back and checked myself. <laughs> well, I, well, maybe we can ask them to produce the um, article right now. Compare that also to the Democratic minority leader, Hakeem Jeffries. Yes. Play the clip. House Republicans at this point are wholly owned subsidiaries of Donald Trump. They're not working to find real solutions for the American people. They are following orders from the former president. That's the height of irresponsibility. That's what the American people dislike about Washington, D.C. at this moment. Let's also take a look at President Biden's messaging lately here. President Biden talking about how China is seeking to divide us. Please. Let me prove to this. Look, Trump and his MAGA friends are dividing us, not uniting us. Dragging us back to the past, not leading us to the future. Refusing to accept the result of legitimate election. He's seeking, as Trump says, to terminate. It was terminate elements of the U.S. Constitution. Yeah, look, and it should be noted when it comes to the bipartisan border bill, the uh, Border Patrol Council, the Border the Union, the Border Cops, they support it. They came out and they endorsed the proposal. So you've got Republicans, Democrats, Biden, Border Cops themselves. It's a wish list of things Republicans want, and then you have MAGA saying they're against it. Total capitulation to the fucking Nazis. That's what that is. Here's a Democratic Senator Chris Murphy responded to Josh Hawley. Maggie Republican Senator Hawley said, Did I mention this border bill? It's taxpayer-funded lawyers to illegal immigrants. And Chris Murphy said, Did you mention that that's just for unaccompanied children? You know, eight-year-old kids fleeing violence or certain death who arrive at our border alone, shivering and frightened, traumatized from the journey, not able to speak the language. We aren't monsters. We should help them. Again, these are very rational and reasonable positions from Democrats and mainstream Republicans, but it's MAGA that's trying to, as President Biden Take said, away is trying the to provide and destroy us here. President infants. Biden talks about how Donald Trump claims he doesn't want to be Herbert Hoover, but Donald Trump is already Herbert Hoover, as I call him, Herbert Hoover. Biden didn't say that. I said that. Here, play this clip. Trump Herbert said, Hoover. The one president he doesn't want to be like was Herbert Hoover. Donald, I got bad news for you, pal. It's too late. You're one of only two presidents in American history, you and Herbert Hoover, who left office with fewer jobs than when you took office. Herbert Hoover, yes. Donald Herbert Hoover Trump. Look. Trump ally, you said you're going to support Joe Biden if he goes head-to-head again with Donald Trump. 
Was that hard for you? I mean, you're a lifelong Republican. Was it hard to make that decision? And I'm curious your biggest concern about a second Trump term. No, it's actually not hard, and it's good to be back, Alex. Thank you. It's not hard because this is really about a threat to the American democracy, and so you just have to take Trump at his word. He wants to demolish the separation of powers. He said he wants to go after his political adversaries and potentially pull FCC licenses of people on the air that disagree with him. So that's that's enough for me. It should really be enough for anybody that studies the Constitution and recognizes how valuable that document has been in the service of all of our families and in creating this great, wonderful country. And then you get mega Republican idiocracy like this, Nancy Mace, saying that she's against the bill, but um, not reading it. Play this clip. Okay, and the more that I read the language in this bill, yeah. the more frustrated I get with it. Because right, it's so not what we're doing. I, I think we're all trying to just figure out this bill. Have you read all 300 pages of this bill? We are, we are working through it. We have about 50 pages more to go. But from what we can tell, about I'm 50 going pages to more to go. Statement once we finish reading the bill, the measures that <laughs> we feel are extremely undesirable that keep our border open, that water down the asylum system. Um, it's not good for the country. It's exactly the opposite. That's why I'm, I'm asking. You know? Yeah, how about talk, kind of talk to somebody who's read the fucking right bill? There. As I said, I think what we're really seeing, you have Democrats working with Republicans and then this MAGA mutation trying to just break things right now. Just hope the American, hope you can share these videos with people. Because as I said, this is actually, there's a path towards a functioning government. It's just MAGA wants to blow it all up. We have to identify where the source is. We've got to identify. I'm Ben Mycellus. This is the Minus Touch Network. Hit subscribe. We're on our way to 2 million subscribers. Oh, he did that already. 3 million subscribers. Sorry about that. It's good news, though. 3 million subscribers. Thanks for your support. Good one. Bye. Hey, Midas Mighty. Love this report. Continue the conversation by following us on Instagram. She don't need no Instagram. She just uses Instagram. What are you waiting for? Follow us now. Making some uh, brownies right now. Fried brownies. A big thank you to the pharmacist for sponsoring this video too. Kinsley has been eating the pharmacist since she was almost one years old. So she is turning right. in two weeks. She is turning. <laughs> she will be sick. She don't need no Instagram. She just uses Instagram. I said that was the published. MAGA reps get treaded as Dems and GOP call them out. New York judge sends stunning message in Trump broadcast. Michael Popak, Legal AF, with some breaking news in the New York civil fraud case against Donald Trump. We've been waiting for Judge Angoron to issue his judgment, which we expect to be a half a billion dollars against All Donald right. Trump. And now the judge has just sent out yesterday a high importance email correspondence directly to Donald Trump's lawyers as quote unquote officers of the court to tell them what happened with um, the former chief financial officer disgraced Alan Weisselberg, who went to jail already for tax fraud a lead witness for Donald Trump in the case of the New York civil fraud case. It was
which he denied remembering any of the attempts by Donald Trump to cook the books related to his statement of financial condition. But now there's new reporting that it's bubbled up to the judge, of course, and we did it here on Legal AF and the Might of Such Network, that Alan Weisselberg is in talk with the Manhattan District Attorney's Office to plead guilty to perjury, lying under oath at least twice in their discussions with the Manhattan DA's office about overlapping issues that, that are also in the New York Attorney General civil fraud case. Nice. And that, as a lead witness, about to take a plea deal to perjury, including perjury, perjury related to testimony in front of Judge Angoron, he wants to get to the bottom of it now and has warned the lawyers nice. that if, uh, if, A, they need to be truthful with him, which is an unusual admonishment by a judge to an officer of the court, but when you're dealing with Alina Hava and Chris Kite, in this kind of case, you got no choice. I'm going to read to you now from the email. It is remarkable. I've been doing this for a long time. I've never received an email like this. And it tells, <laughs> and it signals to Trump's side that they are in for um, a world of hurt uh, based on this particular, um, uh, you know, results from this particular finding. If the judge were is to conclude that that perjury, of course, tried to influence his ultimate decision. <laughs> so let me read to you now from the actual um, email, and we'll take it from there and put it up on the board here. The judge starts it with a high importance email. He addresses it to, um, yes, the lawyers for the, uh, the uh, uh, attorney general, but really addressed to Alina Haba and, and Cliff Robert and Chris Kais. And here's what it says. Dear counselors, as you are undoubtedly aware in an article in the Feb 1 online edition of the New York Times, headline, Trump's former finance chief in negotiations to plead guilty to perjury, um, uh, that article writes that the Fed at Alan Weisselberg is, quote, negotiating a deal with Manhattan prosecutors that would require him to plead guilty to perjury. The judge goes on to say, what's more, quote, he would have to admit that he lied on the witness stand in the case pending before me and during a pretrial interview plaintiff wow. conducted. As the presiding magistrate, the trier of fact, and the judge of credibility, <laughs> Judge Ingoron continues, I, of course, want to know whether Mr. Weisselberg is now changing his tune and whether he is admitting he lied under oath in my courtroom at this trial. Although the Times article focuses on the size of the Trump Tower penthouse, his testimony, Weisselberg's testimony, on other topics could also be called into question. Sure, the judge is acknowledging that, yeah, he lied about the size of the Trump Tower penthouse, the triplex, saying that it was 30,000 square feet and not 10,000 square feet, which tripled the amount of that asset being listed on Donald Trump's uh, statement of financial condition from 10 million to... to um, sorry, from $30 million to over $100 million. But it also, if you say that you perjured yourself and you committed the crime of perjury, you completely take off the board all of the testimony that would have been helpful for Donald Trump. Anything that, that inculpated him, in other words, absolved him of any type of liability related to the fraud, you just have to take that off the board and completely discount it as a trier effect. And that's what the judge is saying here. What, what uh, the judge continues to say is, um, although the Times article focuses on the size of Trump Tower, his testimony and other topics 
uh, could also be called into question. I may also use this as a basis to invoke falsus in una, that I can't believe that the concept that this, I can't believe anything that the witness said, and there's an adverse inference as a result. As the article notes, perjury, perjury, particularly in a high-profile trial, undermines the broader ends of justice and cannot be ignored. I do not want to ignore anything in a case of this magnitude. Again, the judge mentioning how large of a judgment that this court could be entering in the next week or so. So he gives them a deadline. By Wednesday at 5 p.m., please submit as officers of the court a letter to me detailing anything you know that would be that would not violate any of your professional ethics or obligations about the plea deal. And now you may know I recently got married. See, we build up our lives with bright mm-hmm. moments of joy, pride, and success. And however you define those Congratulations, moments, peace of mind, percent off plus shading. And, and for for people who suffer from type two, try this natural drink in the morning. It helps me drop my sugar levels from two hundred. These are confidential negotiations that we're not negotiating. And, and for full and complete dis, uh, disclosure or information here on this hot take, the lawyer for um, Alan Weisselberg, Seth uh, Clayman, or uh, yeah. Uh, is not one of the lawyers that this email is being addressed to. So they would have to reach out to Seth and ask him what's going on with the plea deal that's now been reported in the paper. We have an obligation to get to the bottom of it for this judge. And that's what I expect that the judge is expecting them to do, to reach out and find out exactly what is going on with the plea deal. I would also appreciate knowing how you think I should address this matter, if at all, including the timing of my final decision. And that's really addressed to the New York Attorney General. Tell me what to do with this information and how I should use it against them. Um, look, this is a, uh, as wow. we anticipated on Legal AF just this past uh, week, from the uh, judge. Weekend, uh, we expected that one of the reasons that the judge was delaying the issuance of the order that we expected last Wednesday against Donald Trump for half a billion dollars is that he was, uh, he had just gotten this information from the Times, which we all did. And now we have a confirmation from the judge that he did not get that information any other way. Like the New York Attorney General didn't alert him to it. He read it himself and is now reaching back out. The, um, the, uh, so now we have confirmation that the judge has really um, has been waiting on this issue and is now struggling, um, not so much struggling with what to do about it, because he knows he's going to disqualify um, uh, Alan Weisselberg as a witness, basically, and, and, his, and all of his credibility. Um, and he's going to, he's even threatened to apply this doctrine under the law, falsus in uno, which means false in one thing means false in everything. And it's the legal principle that a witness who testifies falsely about one matter is not credible in testifying about any matter. He's going to do that as well, or as I said on a prior I think, take Alan Weisselberg off the wall, uh, off the uh, wall of uh, credible evidence in favor of Donald Trump, do the same thing with his four experts, which he's already discounted, and that this is the same judge who's already found that Donald Trump has lied on under under oath. So this number for me, as I said earlier, I don't think it's the $370 million disgorgement number that the, that the uh, New York Attorney General put on the board plus interest. I think it's a half a billion dollars. And nice. I think the judge can use this kind nice. of I got lied to during the trial uh-huh. as a way to ratchet up and increase the amount of the, right. uh, of the award. Uh, we, they have a deadline. We're going to follow their response to this deadline in only one place. 
to Midas Dutch Network and on Legal AF. Got a midweek edition coming up on Wednesday at 8 p.m. on YouTube, but we'll hit it earlier. They have until Wednesday at 5 o'clock, right on time for Legal AF on Wednesday. We'll be able to report on it live after it's happened. Because that letter that the judge is looking for has to go back to uh, and be docketed and filed in open court. It won't just be uh, an email back to the judge. We'll see it on the docket. We'll be able to report on it. So we'll continue to report on what's going on. And as all these new data points come into the judge, including perjurious witnesses and what, uh, uh, on behalf of Donald Trump and what nice. he does about it, as he continues drafting, I'm sure it's almost completely done. And the ink is almost dry on the final judgment against Donald Trump and all Yay. the Trump organizations, including barring and banning Donald Trump, Don Jr., and Eric Trump from ever being officers and directors or board members in New York of a New York corporation, borrowing money in New York from a New York bank, transacting so business in New York um, in real estate or otherwise. These are the remedies that are being Couldn't sought by the New York Attorney General and are also people. in play, along with the dissolution of the Trump Organization as as under the monitorship of a, a court-appointed monitor. It's breathless what I'm talking about, but you can see the magnitude and the scope of what's magnitude. happening here to Donald Trump. He's circling the drain financially and in, a, as right. in the business world, and we'll continue to report on it, on the 2 million strong Midas Touch Network. So my all. next hot take, so my next legal my AF Hey, Midas Mighty, love this report. Continue the conversation by following us on Instagram, at Midas Touch. Keep up with the most important news of the day. What are you waiting for? Follow us now. She don't need no Instagram. She just uses Tristagram. That was great. Thank you, Michael. Judge. And go on. Hmm. Very nice, Trista. Brownies. A lot of, a lot of walnuts. Let's see what people are saying. In the comments. Well, it's a very nice fried, it's a fried brownie, basically. Um, comments. Current Republican solemn oath, no truth, half truth, and nothing close to the truth. Courts must be sickened by Trump's soiled legal briefs. <laughs> you go judge and go on. The courts are hot today. Trump's about to go up in flames. Paper 9 is, co is as cooked as his books. That's a good joke. <laughs> good joke. Hmm.
Republicans, this is ridiculous. We should let the courts decide. <laughs> courts decide against Trump. Republicans, this is ridiculous. <laughs> President Dump. President Trump. Daddy mm. shots. Like fried walnuts. It's really nice. Mm. Very nice winter food. FDJT. Mm. Mm. I hope Judge Ngoron takes his time and makes his decisions as appeal-proof as possible. Nobody in Donald's diaper dons orbit is truthful. He wouldn't allow them to be. President Dump. Evangelicals don't seem too worried about that. Bearing a false witness. All right. Mm. Mm. I should just go and make, take notes. And turn that into stand-up. Bearing a false, uh, you know, and um, worshiping false idols. Just do a whole series on Christmas. Don't seem to be too concerned about. Love your neighbor. Kind of the poor. Keep up with the most important news of the day. What are you Jewish. waiting for? Follow us now. Judge Kennan butchers the law in very odd ruling. Thanks for 323K, even if it's just law enforcement. Federal Judge Eileen Cannon is at it again, issuing yet another unusual scheduling order on SEPA Section 4. SEPA stands for the Classified Information Procedures Act. This is in the federal criminal case against Donald Trump for the willful retention of national defense information. Technically, it still has a trial date scheduled for May 20th of 2024, but given that Judge Cannon has yet to issue any substantive rulings, unclear how that date is actually going to be a real date. Newsflash, it isn't. Let's just take a look at her scheduling order. Let me explain what it means. I'll go through 
how SEPA Section 4 is usually handled. I'll go through some of our other bizarre SEPA Section 4 rulings. I'll tell you how it's supposed to be handled. I'll explain to you where we go next, key dates, key deadlines, what I expect is going to happen. Here's the scheduling order just issued by Judge Cannon. On February 12th and 13th, 2024, the court will conduct sealed ex parte hearings Go on. pursuant to Section 4 of the Classified Information Procedures Act, SEPA. These proceedings will be held in a facility suitable for discussion of the classified information contained within the party's Section 4 submissions. The anticipated schedule for the Section 4 hearings is set forth below. Monday, February 12, 2024, from 9.30 a.m. to 2 p.m., the court will hear argument from defense counsel for all defendants outside of the presence of the special counsel Consistent with the protective orders entered on September 13, 2023, defendants Nauta and De Oliveira may not be present. Defense counsel shall be prepared to discuss their defense theories of the case in detail and how, many and how any classified information might be relevant or helpful to the defense. Defense counsel shall also be prepared to discuss defendants' motion for access to SEPA Section 4 filings and defendants' challenges to the Special Counsel SEPA Section 4 motions. Then it says from 3 p.m. to 5 p.m., the court will hear argument from the Special Counsel outside of the presence of defendants or defense counsel. The Special Counsel shall be prepared to discuss SEPA Section 4 motions and all follow-up items from the sealed ex parte hearing held on January 31st, 2024. Then it says, Tuesday, February 13th, 2024, as previously ordered, the parties shall reserve February 13th, 2024 for further proceedings on their Section 4 submissions as necessary. Three, as a separate matter, consistent with the protective orders entered in this case, defendants Nauta and De Oliveira shall file a public notice of filing on or before February 7th, 2024, she wouldn't be a judge right now. submissions referenced in their challenges to the she special counsel motions done and ordered in the chambers at Fort Pierce, Florida. This the fifth day of February. Se Folks, no severance this pay. This is very bizarre, but nothing surprises me with Judge Eileen Kennan. There's nothing complicated, complex, difficult about SEPA Section 4. It is a statute, SEPA, that's been on the books for a long time. SEPA Section 3 deals with the protective order in cases involving highly classified information. SEPA Section 4 involves requests by the government made on an ex parte, in-camera basis, meaning no defendant, no defense counsel. It is a meeting between the government and the judge where the government says, we would like to withhold certain documents and replace them with some sort of substitution or summary in the interest of national security that these documents 
are not relevant or helpful to the defense of the criminal defendant, and we will replace them with some sort of summary, withhold the document from the normal discovery production, such that it isn't even produced subject to the CEPA Section 3 protective order. Folks, there's nothing controversial about it. In every case ever on CEPA, including if you read CEPA Section 4, the statute, it says that these hearings happen in camera, ex parte, no defendant, no defense counsel. So what in the world are we doing here? So now, Judge Cannon has set, like, rather than just one SEPA Section 4 hearing, which should have happened months ago, mind you, it took Judge Eileen Cannon, like, three to four months before she even entered the SEPA Section 3 protective order. Now we are in February, and she wants to hold, basically, three separate SEPA Section 4 hearings for, for what? You just need one. Meet with the government. The government presents to you why it's withholding the documents. You can then make your decision, Judge Cannon, if you agree with the government or not. If you disagree, you turn it over to Trump, and then Special Counsel Jack Smith has the opportunity to appeal to the 11th Circuit if Jack Smith's team disagrees with your orders, since things are directly appealable when you are challenging a court's ruling under SEPA. When I say that there are three separate hearings, you saw in that order, Judge Eileen Cannon referenced this other hearing. Judge Eileen Cannon set like a pre-hearing SEPA Section 4 hearing where she met with Special Counsel Jack Smith's team on January 31st, 2024, to assist the court's evaluation of defendant's motion for access to SEPA Section 4 filings. The answer is very simple. Defendants don't get the materials. It's that simple. This isn't a quandary. This isn't some area where judges need to divine the answer and look through statutory history. But then again, we're dealing with Judge Eileen Cannon, who was the only jurist in American history who asserted equitable jurisdiction over the search warrant executed on Donald Trump's premises at Mar-a-Lago back in 2022, when all of the law states that you don't get to assert randomly equitable jurisdiction. So she tries to come up with like newfound uh, readings of the law to, to ultimately help Donald Trump. This was her previous paperless order. And notice, these are all paperless orders that she makes because she doesn't want to make a substantive order that can be appealed. She's yet to make like any substantive order. They're all scheduling orders. This is the one that she made on January 11, 2024 about the hearing that just took place on January 31st, 2024. She goes, in advance of the upcoming CEPA Section 4 hearings and to assist the court's evaluation of defendants' motions for access to CEPA Section 4 filings, the court hereby schedules a hearing with the special counsel on January 31st, 2024. The hearing shall be conducted on a sealed ex parte basis in a facility suitable for the discussion of classified information contained in the special counsel Section 4 filings the court reserves ruling on defendant's motion for access to CEPA Section 4 filings pending the February 2024 CEPA hearings and review of defendant's forthcoming CEPA Section 4 challenges. There's nothing to reserve your ruling. Like, the defendant's not allowed to have access. So, like, what in the world are you doing? And here, in this new scheduling order on CEPA Section 4, adding a hearing now on February 12th and February 13th, this weird scheme here of she's going to meet alone with what? Donald Trump, 
She says De Oliveira and Nauta can't show up, but she doesn't say Trump can't show up. So she's going to be with Trump, Trump's lawyers, and Nauta and De Oliveira's lawyers. What, what are you going to talk about? What, what are you going to do in this? What are you going to do in this meeting? Like that's very bizarre. And then later in the afternoon, you're going to meet with the Department of Justice, and then you're going to reserve time on February 13th to determine if what defendants should have access to the filings. The moment Judge Cannon does that, if she grants defendants access to SEPA Section 4 material that they're not allowed to get, then Special Counsel Jack Smith can go to the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. I think that's basically what Jack Smith is waiting for at this time. And I think Judge Eileen Cannon is just trying to delay actually making rulings by setting all of these scheduling conferences and hearings and I think she's probably even confusing herself at this point with what remains on her docket to even be ruled on. I mean, she hasn't even ruled on, you know, anything at this point. She set a hearing for March 1, so that's coming up in under 30 days where there's a kind of a status conference and I guess a determination if the May trial date is going to stay in effect. I see no possibility of this May trial date going based on how Judge Eileen Cannon has managed her docket. So the interesting thing will be if that trial date gets kicked, and I think no matter what, that trial date is going to get kicked. Even if Judge Cannon is going to try to keep that trial date on calendar, the moment she makes a SEPA Section 4-type ruling, Special Counsel Jack Smith, I think, is going to file an interlocutory appeal with the 11th Circuit. I think that will stay all of the proceedings before Judge Eileen Cannon, there will be a briefing schedule before the 11th Circuit, the same way we see the D.C. Circuit's proceedings stayed pending um, the rulings that are the D.C. Uh, District Court, pending the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals uh, decision. So I think ultimately that's where that's where this is, is going to be heading. And you may be saying, why hasn't Special Counsel Jack Smith sought the recusal of Judge Cannon at this point in time? Well, it's hard to get a recusal in the 11th Circuit, and I did a whole hot take on this with Harry Littman from the, the Talking Feds podcast, which is partnered with the Midas Touch Network, and you can check out that YouTube channel by Harry Littman, Talking Feds. And the thought is, is that you have to really wait for Judge Cannon to make a bad order, so you can go to the 11th Circuit and just say, look, she made those two screw-ups and bad decisions previously on a Trump case. She's now made another one. It's almost like strike three and you're out. If Jack Smith sought the recusal of Cannon from the very outset of the case and it was denied by the 11th Circuit who want to give her the benefit of the doubt that she may have learned her lessons from the prior case where she was overturned twice, where she asserted equitable jurisdiction, then Jack Smith would really have trouble getting her recused and removed again if the 11th Circuit ruled against him. It's hard to bring that motion kind of multiple times without seeming a bit vexatious and having so, personal animosity towards the judge. So no, I think Jack Smith strategically personal was saying, well, we have to wait until she <laughs> issues an order and screws up. Then we can go to the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, and then we can not only seek to have her overturned, but raise the issue that this is the third time this has happened. And the 11th Circuit case law has a case where a judge engaged in kind of three acts of insubordination to the 11th Circuit, and then that district court judge was ultimately removed. But the broader point here that I just want to make finally is SEPA is very, the simple, the simple statute. I mean, 
it deals with a complex issue, of course, of cases involving classified information, but it's not hard to follow. These are not novel issues. SEPA Section 3 is the protective order. SEPA Section 4, government requests to withhold documents. SEPA Section 5, the criminal defendant requests to add classified or to present classified information at the time of trial. The government can oppose that. And then you have the other SEPA sections which deal with how we, how we handle classified documents that may be useful and helpful. How do we handle those at trial, summaries, other types of ways of dealing with it so that the due process rights of a criminal defendant are protected, but also our national security interests aren't harmed. And put it this way, Cannon hasn't even set the SEPA Section 5 hearing yet. It's like the main SEPA hearing. And if it's taking her this long to deal with SEPA Section 4 to contemplate whether or not Trump's lawyers can show up at a SEPA Section 4 and Trump can show up, which they're not allowed to do, what's she going to do with SEPA Section 5? So it's just a total mess when it comes with Judge Eileen Cannon. But I think one of the positive things as we think about it, though, too, is though Judge Tanya Chutkin just said in a different proceeding today in the Washington, D.C. federal criminal case is that you know, she's prepared to try Donald Trump's case in the summer. If the D.C. Circuit doesn't rule soon, she's ready to go. And so Judge Chutkin's basically indicated that she's, you know, that she'll be ready to have her trial. So one of the things that I'd be interested in seeing, you have the Manhattan District Attorney case up first. Donald Trump becomes a convicted felon. And then right after that, you go right into the Washington, D.C. criminal case. And Cannon is making such a mess that her case is going to be moved until next year. But then you get the two, yeah, you get the Manhattan case and then the D.C. case for Trump trying to overturn the results of the free and fair election all um, happening in, in this year. So we'll keep you posted. I'll let you know more as I know more. Hit subscribe. We're on our way to 3 million subscribers. Thanks for your support. Thanks for watching. Have a good one. Of this video, make sure you stay up to date on the latest breaking news and all things Midas by signing up to the Midas Touch newsletter at MidasTouch.com slash newsletter. about a year ago or more for Judge Cannon's removal and I would have filed additional times as necessary to make sure that she is gone. Nothing personal. She sucks. <laughs> Nothing personal. She sucks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Nothing personal. She sucks. You think she sucks? 
She sucks. You think she sucks? Yes or no? <laughs> Jesus, don't stop him now. <laughs> Great. Instagram is also shared to Facebook. Super duper. You guys still there? Oh my gosh, you are. That's just wonderful. That's just wonderful. Um.